What's up, y'all, and welcome into the Jack Vita Show. I'm your host, Jack Vita, here for an audio-only edition of the podcast. Uh, this is There's no video for this. So you're not missing out on anything if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, wherever it is that you're listening to podcasts. There's no video, so no FOMO needed for this edition of the podcast. But if you guys like the show, make sure you do subscribe on YouTube. Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is that you enjoy listening to podcasts. So in today's baseball news, we're going to talk some ball. The Seattle Mariners are heating up. The Texas Rangers are collapsing. And the new seismic changes coming to the Chicago White Sox. This is the Jack Vita Show. Joining me today to discuss it all, and especially discuss all everything that's going on in the AL West right now, is our resident Seattle sports guy, the Mario Lanza, returning to the show. Mario, welcome back. Great to have you here. Oh, thank you. It's so exciting to be here. I always love doing your show, Jack, just because you always let me on to talk unfiltered about the Mariners. <laughs> well, it's great to have you here. I know people always enjoy uh, when we get together to do one of these, whether it be once a year or twice a year, however frequently we did it. Last time we spoke, uh, we had your fellow survivor historian, Jay Fisher on. So we had the two survivor historians that care about sports together on the Jack Vita show back in the winter time, breaking down free agency. A lot's happened since. So it's great to have you back. Yeah. Thanks for letting me uh, dump that dead weight and letting me appear by myself this time. (laughs) No, it's always good to have on Jay on. Jay's always one of my favorite podcasters, but yeah, this is, Straight up, just uh, Mario gets to talk about the Mariners today, so I'm excited about this. Yeah, don't worry, Mario. Jay's not listening. <laughs> Good. I, I would expect nothing less. <laughs> but no, yeah, we'll we'll do it again with Jay. That was a fun episode. It was actually the most downloaded episode in the history of the show, so people really enjoyed oh. it. So we'll have to do it again. Uh, but Mario, if you guys have followed this show over the years, we've been doing this now, it seems around this time each year, we check in around late July or August or September, we talk about baseball season. Uh, so the first time we did this was actually over four years ago now, back in 2019. Mm. And we've seen in the time since the Mariners exponentially rise. And right now, at the time of this recording, which is... Sunday, August 27th, 2023. The Seattle Mariners are in first place. (laughs) Yes, they are. By the way, I have to point something out. I was just looking at the standings the other day, like the Mariners over the past 10 years. So you had me on in 2019 to talk about the Mariners. That's literally the last bad Mariners team in the past 10 years. So I just (laughs) wanted to point out the Mariners being doormats and being, you know, footstools in the American League. That's a thing of the past. For 10 years, we've been a pretty good team, including especially these past three years. So I'd love for you to uh, dive a little deeper into that because mm-hmm. I, one would say that they heard you talk about the club on the Jack Vita show and it lit a spark within that organization and things have just gotten much better since. But over the last 10 years, what have we really seen out of the Mariners? Because I know that a lot of people listening might just – if we look, this is something that someone said one time. The last time we did a podcast together, got a comment from Josh Harding, listener of, of this show. He's a listener of your other podcast, Mario. Great guy. And he said that what he likes about this show is this is a show that appeals to sports likers, not just mm-hmm. sports lovers, sports likers. There are a lot of people 
that want to learn more about sports when they listen to these podcasts. And we're not assuming that everyone knows everything about sports. So there are probably a lot of people that look at the Mariners and say, prior to last year, the club had not made the postseason mm-hmm. in 21 years. The last time had been 2001. So someone who's looking that looking at that might say, oh, yeah, no, they, they've been a laughing stock for 20 years. <laughs> but you are saying that for the past 10 years, they've actually been a pretty good club. Yeah, in fact, I even said that, I think, before this season. I went on your preseason podcast, and I pointed out, I think, I remember read a stat that over the past five or six years, the Mariners had had, like, the fifth best record in the American League overall. And it, it's funny because this is a perception that even Mariners fans have, even long-term Mariners fans. You know, the Mariners will win 10 in a row, and then they'll blow one game, and a lot of Mariners fans will be like, oh, same old Mariners. <laughs> But, like, that's not true. The statistical evidence doesn't back that up. And, okay, to go to your point, what has changed? The main thing is about, I don't even remember, seven, eight years ago, I forget exactly when, that was kind of the Jerry DePoto era started in Seattle. And, again, for sports likers, not lovers, this is, you know, you dump your entire front office, you dump all your, your statistical department, all your coaches, you bring in an entire new regime, and we got this guy, Jerry DePoto, who's very stat-based, very forward-thinking, very well-known for being a trader, analytics, <laughs> just a really smart guy. I'm a huge Jerry DePoto fan. And they brought DePoto in, and he's like, you know, I'm going to make it my mission. I think he said something in like six years, the Mariners will be contenders or they'll be World Series bound or something. I don't remember. I don't, I'm not big on details. I don't know specifics, but I just remember this. And that timeline kind of corresponded to 2020. 2020 or 2021 was supposed to be when that happened. And then the pandemic hit, and it kind of screwed up the whole timeline. I know everyone knows baseball just was gone for like two years. It just kind of disappeared. And all the development stopped and everything. But if you take away those pandemic, that that little glitch there that, you know, the the, uh, historical time in history that has never happened before in sports, Jerry DePoto's timeline really has lined up to where he has wanted to be. And what they wanted to do was uh, focus all their efforts on the draft, draft these young uh, players and pitchers that they have, uh, you know, identified through their system as having an exceptional talent or an exceptional growth arc. And they just brought them up through the system. And that was basically the Houston Astros model that, we want to do what the Astros did, it's, you know, tear down the team, start from scratch, build them up, go through the draft, go through development, build up our farm system, build up a culture of winning. And that's the thing. I still see Mariner fans bitching about DePoto and, and Scott Service saying they don't like the way they do stuff. But if you look at the results, everything they've said they've done, they have done. And we're right now seeing the fruits of that labor that this big six, seven, eight year plan has really started to pay off. Like, I don't think there's a general manager in baseball who wouldn't want the Mariners' future right now. How good they look over the next, you know, five, six, seven, eight years with all the talent they have coming, all the talent they have now, all the young, cost-controlled people they have. It's just, it's. I said this at the start of the season, and I know it didn't look good, but it didn't look good because the Mariners weren't winning during the season. But I said, on paper, this is the single best Mariners baseball team in my lifetime, and I still stand by that. And I think next year is going to look even better. So we're going to dig into this one thing at a time. So I'm going to go back to DePoto. So for those who don't know Jerry DePoto, before he came over to the Mariners, he ran the Los Angeles Angels front office for 
about five years or so, 2011 to midway through 2015. Mm-hmm. And when he was the GM of the Angels, only one of those seasons did the team post a losing record. 2011, they won 86 games. 2012, they won 89 games, still didn't make the playoffs. Uh, There's a different era. There was only, there, I think 2012 was the first year that they had the two wild card spots, and now we have three wild card spots in each league. Uh, and then 2014, Angels win the division. They have that, that was a team where it kind of all clicked with Pujols and Mike Trout and Mark Trumbo and uh, Josh Hamilton. And then in 2015, the club won 85 games. He resigned in the middle of the season. You know what's happened with the Angels since Jerry Depoto left the organization, Mario? <laughs> I can take a pretty good guess because I live in Southern California and I go to a lot of Angels games. Let's just say it's not good, Bob. <laughs> they have not posted a single winning season since yeah. Depoto left. So that's that's a little bit of background on Jerry Depoto. He comes in and is hired by the Mariners towards the end. I think it was after the 2015 season. Uh and then, so that would be, if you're talking about a five or six year plan, you go from 2016 being year one, t- mm-hmm. where they actually won 86 games, I think. And then uh, 2017, 78 wins, 2018, they won 89 games. That was when they, they actually kind of competed while they, it was before they started to, re- they tore down a lot of stuff, but they traded for D Gordon. They won 89 games, put D Gordon in the outfield. Um, and then, you know, 2019 was really the only really bad year where they lost 94 games. But mm-hmm. as you're talking about, then you have 2020 where they were six below 500, but you could see what they were starting to build 90 wins the last two seasons. So as you're talking about Mario, this has been a team that has achieved good regular six season success ever since Depoto came in. And even before that, back in 2014, they had a nice 87 win team. That was kind of an outlier before he came in. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of criticism. I know, that people say, you know, Jerry DePoto couldn't win with the Angels. Jerry DePoto, you know, he was behind the the Pujols signing and everything. But I know the perception is that he never had full control over the Angels. Like he was a yeah. GM, but there was always pressure on him from the top to do other things. So he wasn't really, that really wasn't his team the way it is in Seattle. So I think it's been a big difference. And again, I I could not say enough positive things about Jerry DePoto. I love the guy. I just love everything he does. But yeah, there is still some criticism lingering. Well, he never won with the Angels either. But I do think you could you could back me up. He never had full control over the Angels. Yeah, that's there's been a there's a lot that we don't know about what goes on behind closed doors, but the perception of the Angels and just look at the patterns. I mean, under different GMs, Artie Moreno with his different GMs has been spending luxuriously on a few players. Last like 2 years ago, they were the only team that had four or five players with uh, contracts of they're making an annual 20 plus million dollars, uh, which now, I mean, we're going to see more and more of that as we have inflation and the sport makes more money, but uh, it's the same pattern. I mean, it was Rendon, it was CJ Wilson, Albert Pujols, Josh Hamilton. Like these are contracts that have been going on over the past decade under different GMs. And that's where I actually like to defend. I find myself defending Perry Manassian, uh, with the Angels, because I actually think he's done a pretty good job of accumulating some nice young pieces, um, but he's confined and they're a little, he's limited in, and I don't think he's fully able to do the job of a 100% GM that has hands-on control of his club because of the way that the owner 
has managed that organization. And then speaking of the Angels, and we're going to talk plenty about the Angels later, I feel like, but uh, Artie Moreno talked about putting this team up on the market and selling them a year ago. I think there are a lot of Angels fans that would have been very okay with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I would personally feel bad to see the Angels go or move just because, I, again, I live in Southern California. Just for people, if you want my background, I grew up in Seattle, grew up in the Kingdom. I've been a Mariners fan since 1981. So, like, I have a lot of street cred with the Mariners, but I have lived in Southern California since 1999. So, I live right by Angel Stadium. It's not far. I go there all the time. It's personally my favorite stadium to visit, which I always, that always surprises people when I say <laughs> that. But I would feel bad if they moved or left or something because I do like oh, that team. No, they're not. I don't think they're moving. He just, he wanted, he talked about selling the team and they took mm-hmm. the team off the market. So I don't know. Have you heard anything about them moving, being a Southern California resident? I have not, but I also yeah. know they are not the popular team around here. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like Oakland in the Bay Area. They're the other team. <laughs> okay. So we'll come back. I'm sure we'll talk more about the Angels, but mm-hmm. it's the Mario Nurs. Hour right now, uh, so Mario. I, uh, you know what? I thought of that. You know what's funny is one of the times that you. So I, the last two three years, I've had Mario send a voice memo giving a little preview of the Mariner season, which he alluded to, and I've been like, I don't know when I came up with that, but one time I, I just saved the audio file as Mario and Nurse, and I guess <laughs> I haven't referred to them on a podcast before that way. <laughs> That's good. All right. It's your show. You can feel free to do what you want. <laughs> it's not his favorite, but that's okay. Um, so he's a big Seattle guy, and we, we touched on this. They've been building this thing, and the future's looking very bright. So I believe it was around July 21st or so. I don't remember the exact date. I looked at this several days ago. But the Mariners were, I believe, 47-49, I want to say. I think they were two games under five hundred, mm-hmm. And it was right after the All-Star break. And then all of a sudden, everything just started clicking. Everything, in the, in the, at the time, they were 10 games back of first place, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And now they're in first place. I yeah. mean, what... We'll talk about things from the Rangers side, and the, I'm sure we'll talk about these other teams in the division, but what have you seen change with this Mariners club over the past month? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, this is a really complex issue. There's no way I could possibly boil this down into one thing or two things, but there's a couple things that happened all at once. And But first off, I have to agree with you. We were under 500. This was supposed to be our big breakout year. Yeah. We had the All-Star game in Seattle. I was so mad at this team. I was like, you just crapped the bed. You had the chance. You're supposed to be a 100-win team this season. You're amazing. You have this pitching staff. You had the All-Star game. That's what really ticked me off. We had a chance to showcase Seattle in our home city for the All-Star game, and it just didn't happen. So I will always be a little furious that that didn't happen. But, yeah, at some point after the All-Star break, and it's it's hard to pinpoint exactly when it happened. Some would say it happened when Jared Kelnick broke his foot. Some have said, oh, yeah, that's the minute they got good. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, some would say it's when the pitching staff really started to click. Uh, I've heard some of the Mariners announcers say what happened was we got Dylan Moore back from the DL or the IL, and Dylan Moore has always kind of been the spark that makes people Yeah, go. he's a he's a glue guy. Yeah. 
And then I have also heard, I remember I saw an interview where Jerry DePoto said, you know, one day Scott Service, my manager, came up and we were talking and Scott just said uh, a couple words. He's like, they have the spark back. DePoto's like, what do you mean? And Scott's like, they have that look in their eyes. It's back all of a sudden. And this is like right when they started that winning streak. So I'm not entirely sure what happened other than, you know, they started winning a couple games. They had some new players come around, uh, just a, a kind of new energy around the team. And then uh, there's a quote from the movie The Natural. I don't know if you remember the Robert Redford, The Natural. Yeah. There's, a, there's this a preacher. That, yeah, this preacher that gives them a speech before every game, like their inspirational talk. And he says, losing is contagious. It's like a disease. So I would flip that on its head and say winning is also contagious. That the minute they started yeah. winning these games, it's kind of contagious. And they started having fun. And like Scott Service said, they had that look in their eyes again. And that's the most amazing stat. I think I just I just read somewhere that they had like an eight-game winning streak and then another eight-game winning streak. And someone pointed out, except for two blown losses in the middle, they would have had a 19-game winning streak. <laughs> And I just looked at it right now, looked at their results. Like when they win right now, they win big. If they lose, they barely lose. Like every game they've lost recently, they could have won. And I went back and I looked and it's been over a month since they've lost a game by more than two runs. And that is astounding for a runs for a, like a, a run scored runs allowed differential for a Pythagorean that they win by like nine or they lose by one and that's it. And that's been how they've been going for like a month and almost a month and a half now. And it's like, that is the sign of a team that is for real. That is not a fluke. Yeah. And I looked it up. It was July. They lost on July 19th. They were 47 and 48 and they were 10 games out at that point. And then all of a sudden they start rattling off. I mean, they did lose a game over that time. And then the, yeah, they just started rattling off these big, big wins. And like you're talking about, it's just, you know, speaking of kind of coming into the season, I did spend a day at Mariners camp uh, out at spring training this past spring. And you can sense a lot of stuff when you're even when you're just there for a day. Now, obviously, some teams players aren't around when you're in the clubhouse. There's less accessibility. But the Mariners are a team that has a reputation of being the most media friendly mm -hmm. and they were, you know, it, it was, so I was, I was just in their clubhouse and these guys are playing ping pong at eight 30 in the morning. And there was just a, a different, I think every team has a little bit of optimism coming into the year, but this, you could sense that this group was like, this season's going to be different. This is mm -hmm. a going to be our big season. And now you're seeing it come to fruition. Yeah, and then there's one other thing I forgot to mention, and I think this is very important, and you only only people that really pay close attention have noticed this, is that the Mariners have some weird pitching academy or pitching analytics department that maybe no other team in baseball has, where they take some cast-off reliever and they turn them into, like, a ace closer all of a sudden. Yeah. And I don't know how they keep doing this. But it's getting to the point now that I keep hearing that pitchers want to be traded to the Mariners. Pitchers want to sign with the Mariners because they may turn their career around. Because the Mariners will find something in their delivery, something in their spin rate, and they'll maximize it. And all of a sudden, this pitcher will become amazing. And then in two years, the pitcher is being traded for three hitters. And I, that, that just happened to Paul Sewald, who's like, I could never in my, my, my wildest dreams guess I would be traded for three hitters. 
<laughs> so like there's the Mariners are gaining a reputation as a place that cast off pitchers want to go because it's where you will turn your career around. And that that's only going to be good in the future. So that's something else I want to mention that they're developing a reputation that pitchers love Seattle. Yeah, they've done a very good job of replacing relievers, just kind of picking up these guys, not having to spend a whole lot. I mean, I remember we were messaging each other and we probably talked about it on our podcast over the winter when former Mariners closer Edwin Diaz got this record contract over the winter. And we're just like, that's that's a stupid contract. That's not how either of us would spend money. You yeah. can there's a way that you can find relievers, develop your own guys. Mariners have been doing it on the cheap. It's the it's the polar opposite of what the Mets did with Diaz. Yeah, and to be fair, Diaz is kind of a tourist attraction. Like he draws in a lot of seats and he's a big name. So I I get a little bit why you do that because when you have people that are like that big a star, you want to make sure they're there for the fans. It's a big draw. But yeah, for a winning baseball move, you do not spend all your money on closers. You just don't do that. <laughs> well, and he's not pitching this year. Yeah. He got hurt, so there's that too. Yeah, it's just but it's just I just I just want to bring that up and I just have, have you noticed that as well? Because I know you're a sports writer. You've talked to people. You kind of you have your finger on the pulse much more than I do. Is it known that the Mariners are becoming a haven for pitchers? It may be in some places. I mean, part of the thing is it's just that when it comes to teams on the West Coast mm-hmm. or in the Midwest, and you know how this is, there's yeah. just less eyeballs in general. Mm-hmm. And it, it's part of it is, you know, as much as we want to criticize the media – for it the media is ultimately in a in a business to make money and you know you do generally get more page clicks when you write about the phillies and the yankees Mm -hmm. and even the orioles the teams on the east coast there's also the thing of i i wanted to watch some of the diamondbacks games the last couple of nights and the game starts at you know nine o'clock here and i'm Mm -hmm. sub i'm i'm up at you know thursday i was up at 6 a.m so not able to watch that game so i think that it's probably something that's going to snowball and we're going to hear more about it more and more and especially if this team wins the if they win the division, we're going to have more and more conversations of how this, how did this happen? Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's something that's widely known about, but I definitely have noticed it. It's stuff that, I mean, you guys on that are Mariners fans are very well aware of. <laughs> I remember specifically just Luke Weaver the other day. You know, he, he gets flamed out of Cincinnati and can't do anything, and he's a free. They cut him. Seattle picks him up. He works with Seattle staff for like a couple hours, and in his first appearance, he strikes out five of his first six batters. <laughs> and everyone's like, yeah, very typical Seattle. He goes to Seattle, becomes an all-star. But it's that's kind of the reputation that Seattle's uh, developing. Well, he wanted to be with Robbie Ray once again, so they could do some more, you know, national anthem stare-downs. <laughs> that's true, yeah. But the, 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 uh, the thing you just said about the East Coast bias is very true. And I like no one hates East Coast bias more than I do growing up in Seattle, living in California. I just I've made it my mission to crap on East Coast bias as much <laughs> as I can. But I will fully admit I have been on the East Coast before and I've wanted to watch a Mariner game. And I'm like, damn, this is late. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. So I get it. I really do get that as much as I hate it. It's you know, I do think it's there's some. Like, like I understand some of it, but at the same time, I think it goes way overboard. I think that's the way I would put it is you do have to make money, but mm-hmm. 
do we really need to see the Mets on Sunday night baseball every single week or the Red Sox on Sunday night baseball every single week when these teams are not going? I mean, the, the Red Sox are in the hunt for postseason, but the Mets are not. The Mets keep playing these. It's like Mets Braves. OK, we get it. You know, like I just don't and I don't really think that those are rating that much better than if you had a Mariners Astros game. I think that would probably rate better personally. So, yeah. And, and, and again, I've told this story before. I'll summarize it again. I always talk about in 1995 when the Mariners made the playoffs for the first time. First time in our history, which you think would be a fairly big story, right? A team makes the playoffs <laughs> for the first time in history. And then you go to ESPN and all ESPN cares about is, hey, Don Mattingly's playing in his first postseason. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, we're playing too. Seattle's a big story too, but no one mentioned that. And that ticked me off to no end. So I've like made it my entire crusade to get people to care about West Coast baseball since then. Well, you know what? It's it's not just in baseball too. It's like mm-hmm. this, we see this a lot in college sports, unless you're USC, unless you – are UCLA where you're these storied, 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 amazing programs. Like most people aren't going to watch the Washington Huskies games because the games are going to start at 9 PM. Mm-hmm. So, and that's actually what happened now with this. I know you're not a huge uh, college sports fan or college or football fan in general, but the big 10 picked up Washington and Oregon because they want to be able to run ads at mm-hmm. 9 PM at night. And, uh, in on Central Time is what I'm 9 p.m. Central Time. So that's primarily what happened in this instance. But we see it a lot in college sports where a team could be playing remarkably. And they could be on the West Coast and people aren't getting a chance to watch them. I mean, is there a way that would it? I mean, is there a way that we could ever have these games start a little earlier? I mean, maybe. Maybe not on a, a weeknight because you want everyone to be able to come home from work and be able to s- see the game. But, I mean, if the game starts at 7 on the West Coast, could it start at 6 on the West Coast? I mean, would that m- potentially change things and make it a little more accessible to people? I mean, they're doing that with baseball. They've started the six ten start time on the West Coast. I, I don't even know if they do that in the rest of the country, but it's so weird to me. Growing up my whole lifetime, the Mariners game was always at 7.05 or 7.35. And now they're like at 610. Did that so start this year? I don't know if it started. I don't pay it that close attention, but I just have noticed it recently. Like, why is the game at six o'clock? That's got to be interesting. An concession. Yeah, that's that's a new that's definitely different from when I was a kid. Do you have a preference? Like, does it make a difference for you if the game starts at six versus seven your time? I- I prefer it later just because I kind of like to finish work and eat dinner and wind down. And I just, it's kind of a, a Seattle thing. Just how always have, as a kid, you'd always have Dave Niehaus on in the background. It was just always on in the background. So I'm just used to that in my evenings. I just like it as a wind down. So I prefer 730 games, to be honest, although that, that doesn't help at all in the East Coast, but that's my preference. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because growing up in Chicago, the Cubs played way more day games. 20 years ago than they do now. And they still play every Friday home game as a day game. And most Saturday home games are day games too. And so I just grew accustomed to loving baseball as day games. Mm-hmm. And I like going to day games more, but I don't work a normal job. Like I'm very blessed to have a job where I'm in sports. So for me personally, as someone who works in sports, I'd rather work during the day than at night So I have a different perspective than 
most people do. Because uh, then, I mean, if you're not able to watch your team while you're at work, then that's a bummer. You want to be able to watch your team when you come home from work. But I've always, I mean, maybe it's partly just the Cubs. It's just always been kind of special to have all those day games at Wrigley. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You you What was important to you as a child, you want to have as an adult. It's just a nice feeling. So yeah, I can totally get that. It's With me in particular, I have a day job as a programmer, but I also have a side job as a writer. And I love writing. Writing is my favorite thing in the world, but I cannot write if there's a baseball game on because I'm paying too close attention to a baseball game. Yeah. <laughs> and that makes it's sense. kind of funny. Yeah. For years, the Mariners would be done in, you know, July. So I could write all through July through September, but I, I get way less writing time now when the Mariners are good and I have to pay attention to the games. As a baseball consumer, have you enjoyed the new pace of Major League games? Um, I don't not like it. I just haven't really noticed it that much. This is, uh, yeah, it's not none of those things I notice unless I go to a live game. And the only time I ever really go to a live game is when the Mariners play the Angels down here in Anaheim. And even my wife has commented, she's like, wow, the game's a lot faster. I'm not used to this. So when non-baseball fans are noticing it, then it must be a success. So I guess I, I, it's a success to me. I think it's, I really like it personally. I noticed it at the start at spring training. It definitely felt different. But since then, I mean, I'm just used to it now. Like this is baseball. I think most people are, except for maybe a few veteran pitchers. But I... One thing that I remember one of my friends saying is when he was watching some of those spring training games is he's like, you can't pull out your phone and look at your phone mm-hmm. because when you'd have some of those longer pauses, maybe you'd be checking your phone and or multitasking. But if you really want to watch the game, you have to put your phone down and you can watch. I remember one time I was at a game at spring training just as a fan mm-hmm. and I videoed a player's at bat and the bat was over in about 60 seconds. I was just like... I wouldn't be doing I wouldn't have my phone out videoing this whole at bat if we didn't have this pitch clock. So I enjoy it. I do think when I'm at a game, I'd rather I I'm not I think the thing for me and I've said this uh, again and again, I don't care about game time. Mm-hmm. Like to me, if the game ends a half hour early, I don't think that's something to really celebrate. I don't think we should be like, yeah, isn't this great? Like games are are quick now. It's more about the quality of what you're watching. You're can you're getting more action. You're seeing more happen, and we're we're getting rid of some of the dead time. So it's not to me to look at it and be celebrating. Look how much game time is down because you know. Hey, I would watch a three hour game if it's the same amount of if we're playing at the same pace. I mean, I would watch three and a half hour games before, um, but to me, I just don't. Like the game, and then when I'm at a game, I don't want it to end quickly. I want to be there longer. So to me, it's not about the game time. It's more just what is the quality of what I'm watching. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. It for me, I when I'm at a game, I pay so close attention to the game. I can't, you, you can't even talk to me because I'm just watching everything. I'm just so into it. So it doesn't matter to me if a game is a long. I, I kind of like the long games. As yeah, a kid. I had no problem. But and I, I have heard one criticism that people say. My wife has said. I can't go to the bathroom. If I go up and go up and go to the bathroom, I miss an inning and a half. Oh, with the new, with the new, yeah, with the new. Yeah. And I've also heard people say with snacks, if I go up and yeah. get a hot dog and Coke, I miss an inning and a half. So yeah. for those people, it's a kind of maybe a little bit of problem sometimes. Yeah. 
But like for me, I don't care because I don't move. I won't go to the bathroom. I won't get food. I have all my food before the game. I'm so invested in a game. It doesn't matter to me. But yeah, for there's pros and cons. To me, I, I couldn't care less, to be honest. It works either way. Yeah, I think that I overall, that's a good one. I mean, I feel like we do this each time we do a podcast, Mario. We kind of do like a state of the game of baseball. There are some other changes that have come to the sport. And we'll come back to the Mariners in a little bit. But we've had some changes. I mean, in mm-hmm. addition to this, now we have the bigger bases, the limited amount of pickoff moves, uh, and we've had the elimination of the shift. Do you feel strongly about any of those changes for or against, or are they all just kind of like, oh, that's fine? Yeah, actually, some of those I really care about. The shift, I'm glad that one died and was burned in a fire because I hated the <laughs> shift. I just didn't like it. Aesthetically, it just looks ugly. I just don't like the whole thing about the shift, that really extreme shift. So I'm glad that one's gone. Uh, the bigger bases, like I don't. I'm trying to picture back when I played, what kind of a difference that would have made to have the bigger bases. I know they say it's better for stealing bases. I don't remember. I don't. I don't have a strong feeling on that because, like, as it, when as a player, I can't imagine how that would have changed my life that much. <laughs> but they say it leads to more stolen bases. Um, I know they said something like 81 percent. I just read this the other day that like 81 percent of stolen base attempts are successful this year. So it's almost like a free steal, like that the, the pitchers can't throw over to first anymore and there's bigger bases, which I have no problem with that. Yeah. We have like Julio Rodriguez, who's like anytime he gets on first, it's an automatic double. Well, so we like, we want to see more stolen bases. That's good for yeah. the game. Well, yeah. Anybody who grew up in the 80s, you saw, you know, Ozzy Smith, Vince Coleman, Ricky Henderson. You're used to these. There's always guys stealing 70, 80, 90 bases. It's not that unusual. So I have no problem with that one. Uh what was the one? What was the other change? There's one that. Oh no, pick you didn't off. It. Well, yeah, the pick pick off is just to encourage more stolen bases. And Same thing. I I don't mind that. I don't. We'll go to that. the we'll go to the other ones in a second, Mario. I'll yeah. say about the uh, the bigger bases. Mm-hmm. I feel like what I have noticed is over the last few years, I really saw a lot of guy steal second base and then he slides off of the base. And then he's the guy, the defensive player, the second baseman, a shortstop, keeps his glove on the player on his leg. And as he slides off the base for a half a second, they review it. He's out. I really did not like that because instant replay should, in my opinion, be used to correct egregiously wrong calls. It shouldn't be in this one small split second frame, the guy came off the base and the defensive player's glove is on him, therefore he's out. I did not like that. I feel like with the bigger bases, I've seen much, much less of that. (laughs) I'm glad you brought that up, because I was going to say, I think the Mariners lead the league in that, sliding over the base and getting tagged out right now. (laughs) That's happened to Julio like seven times this year. (laughs) So I don't know if it's really gone down all that much, or maybe I just have a a smaller uh, sample size to look at, but I I don't know if it's changed that much. Because I would, well, if it hasn't, that's something I would like to eliminate in some capacity. Find some way where it's like you have, I don't know if the rule would be that you can, in order to actually be off the base, once you've gone into the base, you have to be off the base for a full second, or you have a, you have a less, you have 0.5 seconds where if you come off the base, immediately after touching the base you're still safe i don't know exactly what it is but the thing is they always seem to get got on that on replay yeah 
And so I would like to find some way that we could stop manipulating replay to get those guys well, out. You know, my, my, my first thought is, like, I've seen baseball ever since, like, the early 80s. I never remember this being a problem when I was a kid, that people would overslide the base and go off it. Like, I, I, my favorite player as a kid is Ricky Henderson. I know yep. Ricky Henderson. I, I've seen so many of his stolen bases. I cannot think of one instance in all the stolen bases he had where he went over the base and came off it. So is this a new problem? Like, are players just faster now? Is there, like, more momentum? Ooh. Because this didn't used to happen. Well, for me, I just feel like, and again, I didn't grow up in the 80s. I was born in 94, so I didn't live through it. But I feel like I really noticed this thing, this trend, once we instituted instant replay. Because um, I feel like th this could have always been happening, but since we weren't replaying everything, and that's where you you got your one challenge you better use it we're gonna let's check and see you know that's that's my thing is i feel like it, it's typically a replay thing because i don't typically see guys get called out at first look and so i don't know maybe that's something we should just get rid of in terms of replay <laughs> yeah i don't know i just i i'm just picturing ricky henderson because i see what i think might happen is i think there's just a fundamental change in the way they make they have players slide nowadays Yeah, because you slide to the outside of the base and you yep. kind of hit the backside. Like Ricky Henderson would just barrel in their face first right into the runner. <laughs> He'd always dive head first. And there's very little chance you're going to overslide the base when you're plowing into the runner, the fielder face first. So I wonder if this is just the way they teach people to slide. And that's one of the downsides. Well, yeah. And it could also be a product of the Chase Utley rule when he slid in and I think he broke Wilmer Flores' leg. Yeah. I want to say, I think it was Wilmer Flores. No, no, no. It was, uh, gosh, what was his name? Ruben Tejada. Mm -hmm. He just barreled into him and took him out. And ever since then, no more takeout slides. So that could be a product of got to make sure that we aren't taking out these guys. So let's slide to the outside of the bag. I guess, yeah, it could be. But I, I do agree that's really a bummer when the guy steals the base and it's clearly safe, and then he goes over it just for a split second and they hold. And again, I've seen Julio nailed so so many times for this. So, yeah, it's just I, I, I somehow wish that would go away. It feels like it's kind of against the spirit of the, the stolen base. In the in the words of a wise man by the name of Rob Zabaknik, they, they lost by a bunch of rules. Just a bunch of rules. That's the only reason we lost. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. I mean, it's a rule thing, but okay. So, so you were about to bring up something that I did not bring up with these rule changes. Go ahead. What is that? Okay. There's one rule I expected to hate the most. This is hmm. the one that absolutely galled me. And there's a couple reasons why. And that was starting a runner on second base and extra innings. Yes. I was so prepared to hate that. That is so antithetical to baseball. And I'm a stat guy. I'm like, how does that, is that an earned run? Is that count against the pitcher? I was so angry with that change. I did not like it. When I watch it play out, I love it. That is my oh, favorite change. And I know that's probably a hot take, but I just, I find it so much more interesting. And maybe that is because the, the Mariners usually win those games and tend to be pretty good <laughs> in extra innings. But I just find it so much more interesting when there's, there's something at stake immediately in extra innings. And I know you may not agree with that. I, yeah, you know what's funny is I actually have gone the opposite way. I think I started as someone like, hey, let's try this thing out. I thought I looked at COVID 2020 year as a chance to try to experiment a little bit. Let's get weird. Let's try some new things and see how we like these things because we're going to play a 60 game season either way. Mm -hmm. So I was interested. I want to see it. 
I thought that it could be something that I'd enjoy. I thought maybe it'd be like shootouts in hockey. I know you're not a huge hockey fan, but when there's a shootout, if you if you find out there's a shootout, you you want to watch the shootout. Those games are really fun, and even though it kind of goes against the what the what you're building up towards over 60 minutes of play, the shootouts are really fun. So I thought it'd be interesting to see. I think for me, I've gone in the opposite direction, though. I don't like it. And I think Mm -hmm. the thing for me is what you see is typically your goal is if if you're the home team and the other team does not score, sack bunt, sack fly competition. I think this would be more interesting if the runner started on first base than second base. Then you might steal a base. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then, But really, I think the other thing is as we're talking about with game time being down, I would go back to, I would go back to normal extra innings. And I've actually found that I've, for whatever reason, whether it's conscious or subconscious, when I see a game go to extra innings, cause I'm, you know, I use the MLB.tv. I float around. I watch lots of games. I'll switch off. If I see a game goes into extra innings, a lot of times I change it. I'm not that interested in the extra inning game. Whereas I like that pressure. I like that, you know, kind of the sanctity of. So, so what my suggestion would be is when you have, especially now with game times going down, I don't see the harm in playing a regular ninth inning, a regular 10th inning, or sorry, regular 10th inning, regular 11th inning. And then when we get to the 12th inning, let's put a runner at first base. Mm-hmm. We get to the 13th inning, let's put a runner at second base. We get to the 14th inning, maybe we put runners on first and second. Like I would I would be okay with each inning adding that extra runner or moving a runner up, but to me it's just too it's too too drastic a change to go from 9 innings of regular baseball, especially mm-hmm. when we're no longer concerned we we shouldn't at least be concerned about game time. Um so I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, in fact, if we're going to play games and they only go two and a half hours, I'd like to kind of have regular extra innings. Yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. It, uh, everything you said makes perfect sense. It's a kind of just a preference. And I could see yeah. that uh, going 10 and 11 normal, then maybe changing the rules in 12th. I know managers and players love the, the new rule because they don't blow out their bullpen this way. There's no yeah, some, some do, some do. Yeah. Yes. Not everyone, know, but some. Yeah. And I will say, personally, I only watch Mariner games. I don't care about any other team. I don't watch any other games. So you watch way more games than I do. So my my opinion on this means very little. But I will say, I don't know if I've ever personally seen a Mariners game where it goes sack, bunt, sack, fly when they start on second in the end because the Mariners just don't bunt. So they're like a lot of American teams, kind of the analytic teams that just don't bunt, period. So I don't know... If I have personally ever seen the Mariners do that in extra innings where they just sack bunt, sack fly, and that's the inning. They're always trying for two or three runs. I saw it last night with the Diamondbacks. They okay. it was, yeah. And they, yeah, I just they ended up watch other teams. They ended up not winning. Uh, but then I also so yeah, I see that a lot with that. But then the other thing I don't like is sometimes you'll have teams that just keep trading hits. So it's like I'll watch a game and you it, the game, let's say it's three to three mm-hmm. and in the top of the 10th team gets one base hit. Now it's, it's four to three. 
Then the other team responds. They do the same thing, 4-4. And you just kind of do it for a few innings, and then and it ends up being like a 7-7 game, or 7-6 seven to, seven to six game. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I look at a box score, or if I miss a game, I'm like, wow, the the uh, Guardians scored seven runs last night? That's that's uncommon. They haven't been scoring a lot. What What happened there? And I look, I'm like, oh. They went to extras and they just kept trading base hits with the Blue Jays. Like, so I, that's the other thing for me. Yeah. It's funny because my, my wife and son will go to baseball games with me. They're nowhere near as hardcore as I am. And we were just at an Angels game a couple weeks ago and it went into extra innings. And I'm like, are you guys aware that they start extra innings with a guy on second now? And my wife's like, why? And my son's like, what? Since when? And I'm like, it's been for a couple of years, but they'd never personally seen it. And they thought it was weird. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I tried to explain the whole process behind it. But yeah, it was really funny watching a layman try to get used to this, having never seen it before. <laughs> so I've got. I was going to yes. say, I should also point out my wife had never seen a replay review in person. Oh, She's like, why are they stopping the game? I'm like, well, they can replay now. They check the tapes in New York. She's like, how long has that been going on? I'm like, I know you don't watch baseball that much, but this is this is a thing now. And it was, but it was really kind of funny watching her uh, react to these. You know, uh, that just reminded me. The White Sox play the best song when they do a replay review. They play the "Tell Me Something Good." <laughs> That's good. I like that. Yeah. So. Um, not my greatest cover of that song, but <laughs> I apologize to the listeners. Uh, okay. I got three that I don't like and I'll just kind of rattle them off. Mm-hmm. Number one is, uh, let me see if I can do a power rankings of this. Number one is no more game 163. Okay. Um, actually, no, number one is the one we just talked about. That was, that was one. Uh, number two is, I like those game 163 tiebreakers. I always thought that, I mean, as someone who's a Mariners fan, you have that memory of going of 163. Didn't you even, you went to that game, didn't you? I did not go to it, but I watched it. And okay. I should point out, yeah, the first one or the big one was the Bucky Dent one back in 1978, the Yankees Red Sox. And like you grew up, that was legendary. This game 163, the one game playoff. So you grew up knowing that was a huge deal. And I think a lot of people forget, I think the next one was the Mariners one in 95, the Mariners against yep. the Angels. And I wasn't at that game. I was at the, the Yankees playoffs. Not okay, the yeah. One. But, but yeah, that was, a, that was a huge deal at the time because game 163 did not happen very often. Yeah, and I always liked those games. I mean, I thought I liked having the one-game wildcard playoffs because, um, mm-hmm. I mean, in, some would say, why would you let a whole season go down to one game? Well, you had a chance to not have that happen if you won your division. Or in the case of if there's a tiebreaker and 163, you had a chance to win one more game. So now we're going to go down to this one game tiebreaker. And I always liked the drama of those games. I remember there was one year that the Cubs and Brewers played a 163 and the Rockies and the Dodgers also played a 163. That was mm-hmm. on the same day in 2018. And I just think that's, I love that. I thought it was great. So we got rid of that. And now what we're doing is, so now how do you win that tiebreaker? You got to win more divisional games, which leads mm-hmm. me to the thing that I dislike the most is this. And I know you and I have talked about this privately is how, we've cut down the number of divisional games. Like I would love to see, I know the Mariners are going to play the Rangers a a few more times and they have the Astros too in September, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So yeah. So there, there, it worked. It worked out this way that you're going to have these divisional games. But there's some situations like the Cubs and Cardinals. Granted, the Cardinals aren't good this year, so it's not going to matter. But this is a great rivalry, and now they play each other only 13 times instead of 19 times. And I'm telling you this as someone who lives in Chicago. The people in Chicago are way more invested when the Cubs play the Cardinals than when the Cubs play the A's or the Blue Jays or the Angels. So I love having these rivalry games. I think it's to to cut down the number of divisional games that teams play is not a good thing in terms of rivalries because the more that teams play each other, the more animosity that they have towards each other. And I mean, Cleveland and, and Chicago, the White Sox, they had that fist fight a few weeks ago. I loved that. I thought it was great entertainment. I And the, the tempers would, I mean, imagine, I don't even know if they play each other again this year, but I'd love it if they did, even though neither team's going to make the playoffs. Yeah, and see, this is one of those things, like, I grew up, obviously, in the 80s, and there was no interleague play. So I was used to the Mariners playing the A's, like, 30 times a year. Like, they were just always playing the same teams over and over, which makes sense. And then interleague play came... And I was like, wow, we're playing the Dodgers. Like, I'd never seen the Dodgers in the kingdom. This was the coolest thing ever. But I do agree with you. It's gotten a little beyond the point at this point. Where, like, I don't care if the Mariners are playing the Pirates. Like, there's there's no particular rivalry there. I don't care. It's not interesting. So I would prefer if they really just played the teams on their own coast. To be honest, I would love if they just had an AL that was all West Coast teams and NL that was all East Coast teams and just go back to non-interleague play. That would be kind of fun. I actually, I like that too. It, you know what? That'd be kind of interesting if we just did like, so if we had two leagues mm-hmm. and we didn't, we just, what if we just got rid of divisions and we just had AL teams play each other all, all the whole, they just, they exclusively play each other. Maybe we do kind of what we had in the early two thousands when I was growing up where you have a couple of interleague series just as a showcase. So you get that you know, Cubs White Sox game every year or, you know, just a couple of them. We could do a couple of them, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, But it'd be cool. Like what you're talking about is what if we had all the teams geographically, like we basically had an East and a West like they have in the NBA and no divisions. And then we just took the top four teams in each league and put them in the playoffs. Now that would be fun. And think of all the fun rivalries you'd have out of that, out of that and how much fans would hate each other and teams would yes. hate each other. Like it'd be like an East coast, rap, West coast rap war. Awesome. <laughs> but I would love that. I want the Mariners to have a rivalry with the giants. I want them to have a rivalry with the Dodgers. I just think that would be really cool. So, I mean, this is a very radical change, but this is me proposing a radical new structure to MLB. Just go East coast, West coast. And that's it. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. We'd have to wait until we get our two expansion teams, so that way we have an even number of teams in each league. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we would go back to when we had the six teams in the NL Central and the four teams in the AL West before yeah. the Astros moved over because we had that even number of teams in each league. If we have 15 in each league, then someone's either not playing or you're going to have to have that interleague series going on at all times. So yeah. what we're saying is... Let's add a team on the West Coast. Let's add a team on the East Coast. Or maybe we don't even need, um, I don't know. I The thing, though, that would be, the only thing that would be tricky is there are a lot more teams on the East Coast than the West Coast. So 
that means that probably in this case, Chicago is probably a West Coast team, right? Yeah, Chicago you, teams like Chicago, St. Louis, you're going to have to decide where they're going to be. It's not going to be specific yeah. West Coast. The, the dividing line is going to be a little more East than you want it to be. And yeah. of course, we have to factor in we don't know where Oakland's going to be playing, so we don't know where they're going right. to be. Right? They could be Montreal. They could be Cuba. We have no idea. <laughs> Oh my gosh, if Cuba got a team. <laughs> the Cuba Athletics, that's what we need. The the Cuba Pedro Serranos. <laughs> but yeah, that's but yeah, that's the thing. It's I've done I've done so many baseball simulations and stuff over the years and it's really funny. I don't know if people have ever looked at If you look at a baseball map where the the teams are, it's funny there are West Coast and then there's a buttload of East Coast and there's one <laughs> One Southern team, you got the Braves, then you got the two Florida teams. But then in the middle of the country, there's not a whole lot going on. You have like the Rockies, yeah. who like represent everybody. And then you got maybe the Royals, who Royals. Are and the Twins and the Brewers. But like the Rockies kind of have everything in the middle of the country. Yeah. And I mean, I would say it's really like what I would notice it as you kind of have those Midwest teams. Mm-hmm. And then. Kansas City and Colorado especially are Colorado is out on its own planet. You got the teams in Texas that are down south. Um so it's kind of like where what do you do with Colorado? Cuz I I did this a couple years ago where I came up with my own 32 team baseball league of mm-hmm. if we restructured this, it was actually a different plan. I would have four divisions in each league. And so my new NL Central was like the Rockies actually joined the Central with the Brewers, Cubs, and Cardinals. That was mm-hmm. the new Central, and we put the Pirates out on the East Coast. And uh, who's the? I'm trying to think who the other team is in the Central. Uh, Pirate. Oh, the Reds. The Reds were in my NFC South. They'd be more like playing the Braves. So it, it'd be a whole thing. It'd be different. <laughs> well, I, this this comes to mind because my daughter just got married and moved to South Dakota. She lives in Rapid City, South Dakota. And I'm wondering, if you grow up in South Dakota, who is your team? <laughs> and this has always bothered me to when people grow up in a place where there's no team. Like, do you root for the Rockies? Like, who cares about the Rockies? I No, no offense to our Denver <laughs> listeners, but who cares about the Rockies, really? So, like, the Twins, maybe? I know the Twins have a big, you know, outreach around that area. I can't imagine it would be the Royals. Seattle seems too far away. So, like... Who are the the South Dakota baseball faithfuls rooting for? Well, who are the here's my, what I would say is who are the minor league teams in that area? Because mm-hmm. I think that's something that personally I I going back to what we like and what we don't like about Major League Baseball and what they've done is they slashed about 60 minor league affiliate teams over the past I mean I think that was in 2020, I want to mm-hmm. say. And one of the biggest criticisms of that was that it's good for the sport when you have points of entry. So if South Dakota, I don't know what minor league baseball looks like there, but let's say they have some affiliate team that connects to the Cincinnati Reds. Mm -hmm. Chances are you probably, if you go, if you're a fan and you go to some games, you have a stake in the Reds now because you saw all those players play when they were in that minor league system. And then you've got the host families that host the players. And so I think that that having all of those affiliates across the country is good for the game because it gives you a way to be connected to a major league team that might not be close to you geographically. Yeah, no, I agree with that a hundred percent. I think that's probably how it works. Although maybe you should put a poll out there for all your thousands of South Dakota listeners that they could <laughs> write in and agree with you or not. 
<laughs> yeah, we'll find out. So, okay, so the Mariners, this mm-hmm. is where, coming back to the Mariners, tied for the division lead. I want to hear your prediction mm-hmm. and your assessment, not only your prediction of how you think things are going to go for the Mariners, but I'd like to hear, hear your assessment of the American League. Because I know you're a big AL guy. You're not an NL guy, but you're an AL guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I only follow the AL. I only really follow the AL West, to be honest, but I will pretend that I follow the rest of the AL here. <laughs> so before the season, you have me on. You always have me record mm-hmm. my uh, promo. And for the Mariners this year, I predicted, you know, everyone was saying they're going to win about 86 to 87 games, somewhere barely over 500. I said, I think 92. I think I gave you a 92 win prediction. Yeah. Which is funny. If you look at their record now, what do they have to go? I think they have to go 19 and 14 to win 92 games, something like that. It's They only have to play a little bit over 500 right now to win 92 so i think they're going to go above 92 games honestly just i think they're going to go 94 and i think they're going to win the division pretty easily just because we're playing teams right now and again it only matters when you like when you get hot in baseball it only remember it only matters when you get hot yeah so the rangers were hot in april and may they are not hot now in fact most of the rangers fans i know are punting on this season already they're giving up they're done they're like this bullpen's the worst i've ever seen so there's not a lot of faith in the Rangers at the moment. So I think the AL West will come down to the Mariners and the Astros. And to be honest, you know, we've had eight years of us being the little redheaded stepchild to the Astros, big popular brother. But this is the year it feels like a change. Like when we play them, we feel like we're the dominant team. In fact, we just played a series of the Astros where we swept them all three games and they weren't particularly competitive. It was not not the same type of thing as in the past, where the Astros are clearly the better team, and if we win, it's because we got lucky. Like this was, we just went in there and kind of stomped them. So I would not be surprised if the Mariners win the AL West pretty handily with a good ninety-four or ninety-five wins, just because that seems to be where we're trending at the moment. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Astros. I'm curious to hear your assessment of what the Astros are at this point. Mm-hmm. I think after. The 2021 World Series. And even before that, I should say before that, after the whole saga with the trash cans, but even even before the trash cans, even before we knew that, 2019, some of us were thinking, you know what, how long is this window really going to be open? At some point, there's going to be some regression. Some of these, you know, some of these guys left. Uh, I know that they had it. They've had injuries, but... They also had, I mean, it's a different team from who they were in 2017 and, and even who from who they were last year. Yeah. And I just think that at some point regression was going to come and it seems like it's coming right now. This is like a transitional year for them a little bit. Yeah, I wouldn't even say regression. Like the Astros put together one of the all-time great dynasties in baseball history. They had yeah. a great run. That was a good team. That was a legitimate all-time great team. And all dynasties eventually end. You can't keep up that level of of talent eventually. So I just think this is their natural kind of falling back down to earth. Maybe they have to rebuild, retool a little bit. They're not quite the team they were in the past. And unfortunately, it's right when the Mariners are going up. So they're they're crossing here. This is the X year where one goes down and one goes up. But yeah, I wouldn't even say it's regression. I would just say the Astros had a hell of a run. They were a fantastic team. And I just think this is the year where they finally 
kind of lose that edge a little. They're just not quite the same team. And again, again, that happens to every great team eventually. Yeah, and I personally, I know a lot of people have talked about pitching rotation. And I, I do think, I mean, it's not it's not a dominant rotation by any means. Mm-hmm. Framber Valdez and Christian Javier have both struggled quite a bit and lately. Uh, Valdez has been really inconsistent. I know he had a no-hit bid a couple nights ago. Uh, friend of the program, JP France, he's been good for them, but they've they've had to rely on him and a couple other rookies in Hunter Brown. And so they have some promising pieces where I think this rotation should be solid for the next few years. But really, it's not the rotation that it was yeah. a year ago. And on top of that, I but I think an even bigger drop off has been their lineup. I mean, this I'm looking at their lineup right now, Maldonado. I mean, he's never been a big hitter. Jose Abreu, his Jose Abreu, what a disappointment he has been. I think a lot of people thought he goes to Houston. He won MVP a couple of years ago. He has an OBP of 289 this year. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the guys that they've plugged in haven't really. Mauricio Dubon, Jeremy Pena, Corey Jolks. None of those guys are giving big production at the plate. I think people had probably higher expectations for Pena than they may have should have after his breakout rookie season. Mm-hmm. So that really leaves them with Jordan Alvarez, Kyle Tucker, and, and Alex Bregman. It's really those three. And then past that, I don't really see much stability in the rest of their lineup. Yeah, and again, we have to be fair. They did win the World Series last year. So yes. this is not a pushover team. But like you said... <laughs> it's very telling. You said they have a pretty good rotation. They should be fine for the next couple of years. That's not the sentence you usually say about the Astros. Yeah. <laughs> you usually say, Oh my God, they have four Cy Young winners. Like that's what you <laughs> usually say. So yeah, this is really, I think, and I think a lot of Astros fans would, would admit this to as well. I've seen this on message boards saying, you know what? Seattle just is hungrier right now. Seattle wants this more. They're on the rise. We're on the decline. Like a lot of them are just kind of tipping their caps saying, I, I, I we were kind of lucky to beat you guys last year. And I that's the thing that I, I was on your podcast before yeah. when the Mariners got swept last year in the in the playoffs. They lost three to nothing. But we were in two of those games. We had the lead. Like, I think we were the second best team in the AL last year against a really good Astros team. And I think Seattle is effectively the same team this year and the Astros have gone down. So that's what I think the difference is. I just think the Mariners are hungrier right now. Well, if we're make if we're drawing a comparison between those two teams, so mm-hmm. they go they went, ended up going out and getting Verlander and trading for him because they need him now. They they mm-hmm. realize that they need him, and so they have Verlander and Framber Valdez. I mean, man, I cannot figure out what's going on with him. Is he just struggling a little bit? He's been inconsistent, and I really cannot figure out Javier because Javier mm-hmm. was someone who looked great the last few years. He hasn't been good. Um, I like Hunter Brown and I like JP, but realistically, if you gave me the option, would I take, I mean, Hunter Brown and JP are both in their rookie seasons. They're not Mm -hmm. as developed as Logan Gilbert or George Kirby, or even some of the other young pitchers that Seattle has. You might, I might pick some of those guys over them. So I think like if I'm drawing a comparison between those two, Seattle's rotation is a slam dunk at this point. Whereas Houston's is still like, I think this is a top 10 rotation in in baseball, but Mm -hmm. I mean, Seattle's probably got the best rotation in baseball. Yeah. And again, I will flat out, I'll be very honest. Houston could very well still beat Seattle this year. They still might be better. 
But next year and the year after that and the year after that, I think it's all Seattle personally because Seattle, as you pointed out, their rotation is unbelievable. They have never had a rotation in their entire history, anything like this, the one they have now. In fact, they have three people right now who I just saw a chart that are all in Cy Young contention. Just for this year alone, we have three. And then we have a couple more coming up. Uh, Brian Wu in particular is the guy yeah. I mentioned. I just saw a... I don't remember if it was Pitching Ninja or one of those websites that does analytics, mm -hmm. but they did a case study on Brian Wu, the Mariners, I think, fifth starter. And they analyzed him, and they're like, Brian Wu is the first pitcher we have ever seen on this website that he has four pitches, and we could not improve any one of them. They're like, there's nothing statistically you could do to make these pitches more effective, and he's got four of them. And I should point out, he's the Mariners' fourth or fifth starter. So, like, the future this Mariners rotation has is unbelievable. And I know I was really pimping Logan Gilbert before. Castillo's a known quantity. I'm such a George Kirby fan. I've been a Kirby fan for years. I've been hyping him up. But, yeah, they got this Brian Wu guy right behind him. So, like, I would not want to face the Mariners over the next six or five, six years. They're going to be scary, that rotation. Yeah, and they've done a they're doing a pretty good job of locking these guys up, too, aren't they? Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, DePoto and the management get a lot of flack because they don't sign free agents. That's kind of their thing. They don't sign these big free agents. They're not probably not going to go after Otani. They never went after any of those shortstops a couple of years ago. What they do is they draft, they develop, they figure out analytically these guys who are going to succeed in their system, and they try to lock them up young. So they got Julio locked up already. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head if they got any of the other pitchers. Did they lock up Gilbert? I, I should know this, but I don't. But I'm not if, sure. Yeah, if he's not extended, he's going to be soon. George Kirby should be the first one they grab. They've already extended Castillo. I mean, that's what they do. They spend all this money internally because their stance is, we don't need free agents. We have our own free agents. These guys are the stars. We're just going to lock them up. Well, hey, look at the success of the teams that spent big in free agency yeah. last winter san diego padres are going to miss the playoffs it looks like and they were a huge spender the mets biggest payroll in baseball history missing the playoffs yankees another huge payroll they re-sign judge they go out and they grab carlos rodan they gave him 160 million dollars they're gonna miss the playoffs yeah. i feel like we're talking about this every single year spending money is not a direct correlation to wins. And I hear this sometimes with fans who say, you know what would really fix baseball? Baseball's got this big competitive imbalance, which I don't entirely agree with. I mean, look at every year, you're going to have a few teams that are at the bottom of the league. It's just what's going to happen. But you've got a lot of teams vying for wildcard spots that are mid-level in the National League. But what they say is, well, baseball would be better if we added a salary floor. So we make teams spend a certain amount of money. Mm -hmm. And their set, their thought is, well, if every team has to spend $60 million, then every team's going to be better. And I don't think that's the case. In fact, I actually think in some cases it might make teams worse because then they're going to just be adding players just for the sake of that payroll and sometimes you get in the case of the Padres. I mean, look at look at the Padres' future. They're gonna, they're certainly gonna go for it again next year. Mm -hmm. Maybe they get this year out of their system. But they're eight games below five hundred right now. What if they're like this again next year? 
they is there an out for them with all these big payroll contracts? I mean, they've got Machado for I believe the next seven years. They've got Bogarts for the next ten years after this one. Mm-hmm. They've got Darvish for I think another six years. Like this, that's the hell of baseball that you don't want to be in. <laughs> Yeah, the salary cap is a, a touchy issue because as a, if you'd asked me as a kid, because Seattle was historically, we'd have a good player, he's a good rookie, then they'd have to trade him because they couldn't afford him. Danny Tartable would be one, Yvonne Calderon, a lot of these guys. So I, it was a very sensitive issue to me as a kid, the salary cap. But I think we've seen over the years, exactly like you said, it doesn't necessarily correlate with winning. Like when I go back to the late 90s with the Yankees, everyone always accused the Yankees of buying all the free agents and buying the, uh, you know, the title, but they weren't winning because of free agents. They were winning because of yeah. their homegrown farm exactly. system. And in fact, someone just pointed out to me the other day, which I never noticed earlier, like, you know, when the San Francisco Giants won three World Series in the 210s. Yeah, guess why? Or not guess why, but guess what the the interesting correlation was? That's right after Barry Bonds leaves and now we win three World Series because we're not <laughs> paying all this money to one person. So it's like, there probably is a lot of uh, you know, uh, intelligence in that statement that it's not how much you spend or how little you spend, it's how you spend it. Yeah. And I think we're seeing a lot of this. That's, they, that these teams have to kind of tear down the, the team to the studs, rebuild, draft, develop, and they become a sustainable winner. And again, as much as everyone hates Houston, that's what they did. Houston was right. unbelievable how, how good they were. Well, now the team that's doing it the best is the Braves. The Braves yeah. are... They have the best record. They're 40 games above 500. 40. 40 yeah. games above 500. I watched a game they played against the Yankees a week ago. Their lineup is just like, it's like a video game. When <laughs> you're, you're playing a video game, you just can't get anybody out. It's like you're playing a video game with your friend. And there, there are no easy outs. They've got eight strong bats in that lineup. And they're, they just said goodbye to Dansby Swanson. They, they chose not to re-sign Swanson. They let him walk. They let Freddie Freeman walk. They didn't spend big on either of those positions. They end up trading for Matt Olson. They extend Matt Olson. They just brought up, they, they gave Orlando Arcia a chance to start, who was their backup shortstop, who was a guy who not that long ago was a big-time prospect coming out of Milwaukee Brewers' farm system, and the Brewers gave up on him. The Braves have, I can't remember his name, but the like a worldly renowned hitting coach. They've done a mm-hmm. good job of fixing guys. And basically what we're saying here is take a look at what the smart teams that are sustaining success do. The mm-hmm. Braves, Dodgers, Astros, those are probably the three teams that have done it better than anybody in the last five years. None of them were in on any of those free agent shortstops. And they're all, I mean, we talked about the Astros. They're still like 15, 16 games above 500. They're still a really good team. they're a good team. Really good team. But the Dodgers, we talked about this with Jay Fisher uh, privately. Um, I I said this to Jay. Jay's a huge Dodgers fan. Dodgers fan. The Dodgers are basically, they, they operate like a small market team with a big payroll. They have mm-hmm. the ability to go out and grab a Freddie Freeman or a Mookie Betts when they want to. But they're, like we talk about, it's through the farm system. And what they did at the trade deadline, they just picked up a bunch of guys in the discount bin. They picked up Ahmed, Ahmed Rosario and Lance Lynn and... They're getting great contributions out of them, and they're not paying. They didn't have to pay a lot in prospect capital or expenses. Yeah, and it's 
yeah, Seattle and Seattle's right there with him with all yeah. these guys. It's Seattle's <laughs> catching up. Yeah, you, that, we'll be there in a couple of years. We're not yeah. quite there, but yeah, it's funny you mentioned that shortstop thing. We had those all those Carlos Correa, all those shortstops, yeah. free agents a couple of years ago, and it was expected Seattle would take a run at one. And Jerry Depoto's like, no, we got J.P. Crawford. He's our shortstop. And, oh, my God, you should have seen the Mariner fans online <laughs> melt down over that statement. Like, we have hundreds of millions of dollars. You're not going to go spend on one of these elite free agents? And Depoto's like, no, we got Crawford. He's our guy. And so many fans were pissed about that, and they're still mad about that. But you look at it, and I think J.P. Crawford is, like, the second-best offensive shortstop in the AL this year. Like, it proved to be the right move. He'd saved a lot of money, and he actually has the better shortstop. So, there is a lot of wisdom sometimes in the free agent signings you don't make. J.P. Crawford, I would say fifth best behind Bo Bichette, Bobby Witt, Wander Franco, who we don't really need to talk about right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please don't let me make jokes about that one. <laughs> and Corey, Corey Seager has been great. But yeah. J.P. Crawford, top five shortstop in the AL. And by the way, if we're looking at OPS, let's see. So Carlos Correa has a 7-1-1 OPS. He's batting 227 with a 308 OBP. Trey Turner slashing 252, 304, 712. Dansby Swanson 245, 333, 760. And Bogarts 261, 332, 730. JP Crawford is better than all four of those mm-hmm. shortstops in batting average 268. Uh, base percentage 385 and he's got an 802 OPS same deal with Orlando Arcia he has an <laughs> he's the guy that the Braves replaced Swanson with he's got a higher OPS batting average and OBP so this is again what I, I know you and I have talked about this not on the air but I'm a firm believer in shortstop being a position unless you do have a an absolute superstar such as a Corey Seager um, but even Corey Seager is it? He's missed several games this year. But mm-hmm. um, or maybe a Bo Bichette or Bobby Witt. But <laughs> Bobby Witt, Bo Bichette, those guys are still on their rookie contracts. So unless you have a, a true superstar that you can, there, I, I really only think there are a couple of these guys that are top ten, top twenty players in Major League Baseball. If you're ranking position players, mm-hmm. I, I think that the best hitters tend to be corner infielders or corner outfielders. So. For me, if I'm assembling a team, my shortstop's a position that I'm okay cutting my losses at the plate with a shortstop. I just want a guy who's going to do okay, um, and I want someone who's going to gobble up every single ball. I want Ozzie Smith, mm-hmm. basically, is what I want. And you don't have to pay a premium for that type of player, and in a lot of cases, you can bring those guys up through your farm system, whereas I'm looking at if I'm going to add and I'm going to spend – that's where I'm going to invest in corner outfield or corner infield. Yeah, it's funny. I, I'm, I, I totally agree with you. Shortstop is historically the one position you can kind of punt on as an Yeah. Right? Because Ozzie Smith, for years, is the gold standard. That's who you want. And I, I want to go back to J.P. Crawford because I forgot to mention him earlier. You asked why the Mariners, what the difference was this year. And a lot of the beat writers, the Mariners beat writers, a lot of the announcers – We'll never stop talking about how amazing J.P. Crawford is and how much he adds to this team. And they always say him getting him jumping to the next level this year is really what made the Mariners jump to the next level because it, they said it's the stuff you don't notice in the box score because they've been hitting him leadoff. He hits leadoff most of the time. 
And they're like, he grinds out more 10, 11, 12 pitch at bats more than anybody they have ever seen. And they're like, it may not show up as a hit, but like the pitcher is going to be tired by the fourth or fifth inning because Crawford just grinds them out every single time. They're like, he's so pesky and he's so consistent and reliable. So I just wanted to give a little shout out to JP Crawford, who the Mariners beat writers and the announcers would say has been the difference this year. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, he has taken steps forward at that position, both offensively and defensively. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget the Phillies traded him for Gene Segura. And Gene Segura got waived earlier this year. So, I mean, that I personally believe that the Phillies should have been a little more patient because I think J.P. Crawford, especially at this stage in his career, far superior player to Gene Segura. Yeah, and I believe he's the captain of the Mariners, too. I mean, he is the heart of that team. So that like it, it's a big deal that we that Jerry Depoto put faith in him and kept him over all these much bigger name shortstops, and I think it's going to pay off that you know JP now has loyalty to that team for life, and now he's coming into his prime. So yeah, it's just it's interesting how it works out sometimes in the long run. You can't judge these trades, you can't judge these free agent signings right away. You got to look about five years down the road and see how it played out. And in Seattle's case, as usually is the case, Jerry Depoto was hundred percent correct. So the Mariners lead the division entering this Sunday. They're tied with the Texas Rangers. The Rangers remind me an awful lot of the 2022 New York Mets. Like, it's just the similarities are unbelievable. You have two teams came into the season, relatively high payrolls. Um, without, in the case of the Rangers and the Mets, neither team had made the playoffs since 2016. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since those teams have really been factors in their own divisions. They go out, they spend a lot of money, and then they bring in a veteran manager that has accomplished a lot of success. In the case of Bochi, three World Series wins. Buck Showalter has managed, I think this is like his fifth or sixth team that he's managed. And so you have these guys come in, and in the first couple months of the season, this these teams with big payrolls, lots of veterans that... They brought in just extremely, wildly, grossly outperformed expectations, outperformed and had big leads in their respective divisions. And in both cases, I was very hesitant to buy into either team. This is what we we get. You got to play a full 162. We've seen this a lot of times where teams come out of the gate strong or they come out of the gate slow and they finish strong. And, Texas just reminds me a lot of the Mets last year where I never had a whole lot of confidence in them in actually finishing the deal. Now, the thing that's funny is I thought the Astros would be the Braves in this case. I thought the Astros were that team where for the last five, six years, they've been winning this division or making the ALCS. The case of the Braves, the Braves are going to win their division for the sixth straight year this year. And so I thought the Astros were going to be that team that eventually overtakes the Rangers and catches up with them. But it's actually the Seattle Mariners. And that's where we were comparing Seattle to the Braves a little bit. The the, the potential, and the, I shouldn't say the potential, the future of this Seattle team could end up looking a lot like what we've seen out of the Braves the last five years. Yeah, we could. We don't have the offense, nearly the offense that they do, and that's the, they're still their Achilles tendon. So. I'm not entirely sure where that offense is going to come from, but yeah, Seattle has the rotation and that rotation is scary. That's like 
they they have the potential to be like 95 Braves good someday, like when they all start clicking. Because you got to realize Kirby's only like in his second year, and he's already setting historical records for you know best whip in history. <laughs> he's only two years <laughs> into his career. But uh, yeah, we don't have the offense. So I don't know how Seattle is going to get to that point. We're not quite the Braves. They're still on a higher level than us. But yeah, we're. I mean, I, I, I'm saying this as a Mariners homer. I feel bad that I have to say this, but we're clearly <laughs> better than the Rangers. I think we're clearly better than the Astros. I just think it's a no-brainer, and just we're finally clicking now. This is the team we should have had all year. So it was really frustrating at the start of the year that we weren't doing that. But do you see the similarities between the the Mets and the Rangers? I mean, you're all, it's always a dicey question asking me about a National League team, Jack. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the I mean, Braves, I, the, yeah. the Mets led by like 10 and a half games last year in the summertime. Braves caught up with them. And yeah. that's, they had a 10 game lead over Seattle. Some teams peak early. That's the thing. If you yeah. peak in May, that doesn't really help anything. Both teams had Max Scherzer. That's the funny irony. <laughs> the funny thing, I have to point this out. The funny thing about Seattle and Texas. There is not a Texas Rangers fan alive who considers the Mariners a viable threat ever to win anything. <laughs> There's also not a Seattle Mariners fan alive who ever considers Texas to be a viable threat to win anything ever. Like, we <laughs> totally do not acknowledge each other as threats ever, and we never will. So it's always kind of funny. We all just kind of unite in our hatred around Houston. But So now we're going to have a situation where it might be Seattle toward, and Texas kind of running down the stretch where neither fan base respects the other one as a threat. It'll be quite funny. <laughs> How many games between the two teams? They have seven. The Mariners' last 10 games are seven against Texas, three against Houston. So over their last 70 games, the Rangers have a losing record. So yeah. that's that's kind of what we're talking about here. And that's a large, large sample size. You're That's almost three months of baseball. Do you so, have access to look up their Pythagorean during that stretch? Like, is, is it are, have they earned that losing record? Like, what's their, their, their run differential? Can you look that up? Oh, uh, let's see. I like to put you on the spot. Well, yeah, especially on my own podcast. Um, let's see. I'll just say Seattle's run differential has been unbelievable since their stretch. So that's how you know. Do it's you know? Good. Is there a way that you know how to do that? Because I do know how to. Let's see. Yeah, there is a way on Baseball Reference, but yeah, you know, feel free to cut this out of the podcast. Well, I, I feel bad. I put Jack on the spot on his own show. Yeah, let's see. Okay, so they were forty and twenty on June sixth. And I cannot believe that team was 40 and 20. I know, right? That's where, well, let's see, who are they playing? I mean, who did they play to open the season? So I think they were playing the Washington Generals. <laughs> <laughs> they, they finished 20 games above or behind where the Globetrotters would have finished. <laughs> <laughs> so they went, let's see, they played Phillies. Phillies were really bad at the start of the year. Uh, Orioles, Cubs, Royals, Astros, Royals. A's, Reds, who are also bad at the start of the year, Yankees. I don't, their schedule wasn't like terribly easy. They just got amazing. Like they, they, they had Seattle, like a, they beat Seattle. I was gonna yes. say they beat us four out of six. So I, I'm not one to talk. No, I their offense I think was wildly like they were on pace to have a historically great offense. I think was what they were doing. And eventually the other parts of the, I mean, they cooled off a little bit and the rest of the team just kind of everything caught up with them. But I don't see, I don't know. I would have to, I'd have to like calculate this and add this up on Mm -hmm. and kind of look at what their run differential was 
then and then look at it now. So unfortunately, yeah. I'm not going to keep this in the podcast. <laughs> no, you can't. It's still inter- interesting discussion because you brought up some good points. You don't need the specific detail. I will just point out, I know their run differential has been putrid during their losing streak and Seattle's run differential has been unbelievable during their winning streak. So it's like th- they're playing to their actual level of talent now. That's all I'm pointing <laughs> Yeah. To. Yeah. I mean, they've been a below average team for almost three months. So that's... Yeah. All right. So one other piece of news that I want to touch on, and I know that this is a little bit out of your division, but drastic changes have come and will continue to come to the Chicago White Sox. Mm-hmm. Um, Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams both fired. Kenny Williams was the VP and Rick Hahn was the GM. Rick Hahn had been their GM for about 10 years. Kenny Williams had been working for that club as either the GM or the VP for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was really quite shocking. Now, I know Bob Nightingale wrote in his Sunday column, he does the Nightingale notebook, and he said that big changes are coming to the White Sox. So he knew what was coming, and I'm certain there are other people. But if you weren't on the inside, which admittedly I was not, I don't, I, I, there's some people in the White Sox organization I talk to, but not that often and, and not quite, I don't have the, that's not a team that I'm as much in with. I'm more on the outside looking in on that team. But as a person who lives in Chicago, we've been talking about what's going to happen here with the White Sox. So this was a catastrophic drop off two years ago. They looked like a team that was going to be here for a while. They're going to be contending. They had this nice nucleus of young players Entering Sunday, they're 28 games below 500. They've been one of the three or four worst teams in baseball this whole season. Mm -hmm. And it's very much unlike Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the organization, to, to make these moves, especially in the middle of the season. Now, the word on the street is that the I believe he's the head of scouting, Chris Getz, or maybe he's the assistant GM. He's someone internally is going to get promoted. I understand going and just kind of blowing this thing up and bringing in some new blood. But typically you don't promote somebody that was a part of, if you're looking at, man, this GM, this VP, they were a problem. We couldn't get anything done here. Typically you don't promote someone who works underneath those guys. Typically you go outside of the organization and bring someone in. Now that still can happen, but most people, I think everybody who lives in Chicago and follows the White Sox was very, very shocked. Not only that this happened, but also at the timing of this, because Reinsdorf has a reputation of really not ever firing anybody. So this was, this was a very surprising story from the past week. I mean, I was going to say, how could you be shocked it's happening when the team is a huge disappointment in 28 games under 500? I understand there's no historical context, but how could anyone be shocked at that? Well, it's just the it's Jerry Reinsdorf has had several there have been several times where the White Sox have been a disappointment. And there's also a like going comparing it to the Angels, there's a perspective a perception that Reinsdorf is pulling the strings and he's running the show and that these guys haven't been able to do their job as best as they might be able to because they there's a perception that they don't get total control. So and this was really, I think, really surprising just because the reputation of Jerry Reinsdorf is basically, you know, whether you like him or not, or think he's a good owner or not, he's someone you would want to work for because he doesn't fire people generally. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. he's a loyal guy. So 
personally, I would say like if if you had said Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn get fired, I wouldn't have been shocked. But the timing of it was the shocking thing. I thought it, I thought it would come in the off season, not in the middle of the season. Yeah, I mean, what what's the, been the fans' reaction to it? What are the fans saying other than shooting people? <laughs> oh gosh. So we should mention that there was a shooting at the White Sox game. Two people got hit by bullets while at the White Sox game on Friday night. And we still have no idea how this happened. If someone brought a gun into the stadium, how they could have brought that gun into the stadium, or if they were outside of the stadium with a sniper or something on a rooftop. Very strange, very sad messed up story thankfully both people are okay mm-hmm. so that was a reaction obviously yeah, there's, there's one reaction well, what are the, rest? <laughs> the other ones i think everyone's pretty much surprised and people are mostly saying i think a lot of, a lot of what i'm saying is we understand the move of moving on especially when this team has won one division title since 2008 and it's kind of funny, I will say, that the one division that they won was under Tony Larusa at age seventy-eight or however old he was. <laughs> that was the one division that this team won, and they're probably not going to win another one for a while. So I, we, I think everyone understands. Yes, blow it up. You, you got to move on. But if you're bringing someone in internally to run the operation, what's going to change? I think the main thing is that fans would like to see Reinsdorf sell the team. I think that's the that's the primary. I think people look at the owner as the problem more than the people who have worked for that owner and who the owner is hiring. That's the problem. Well, yeah, okay. I, now, admittedly, I don't know much about the White Sox. I don't really know their situation. But you said going into the season, there was high hopes. Like, they were on a team on the rise. There was a lot of hopes. If you're going to tear down the team and kind of start it over... How much do you tear down? Because if they had so much potential, there's still got to be some potential in there. Yeah, it was really from two years ago. I think you go back to starting last year's season. They're coming off 2021. They win the division. They win a playoff game against the Astros. They didn't win the series, but they beat the Astros in a playoff game, which feels like a big accomplishment, especially when you haven't been in the playoffs. You haven't sniffed the playoffs in, you know, over a decade they did get in in 2020 short season but it looked like this it looked like they had a team that was comparable to the cubs when the cubs started getting really good in 2015 it was like look at all these pieces look at all these young guys and i mean they did sell a little bit they traded lucas giolito who not that long ago looked like he was going to be an ace of rotation and doesn't appear to be that that's the trajectory for his career anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, yeah, they do still have Dylan Cease, who finished top three in Cy Young voting a year ago. Uh, Luis Robert is having a big time season. I mean, he's a star. But then part of the other thing, though, is some of the guys that that they did have the high hopes for, Aloy Jimenez has not been able to stay on the field. Um Yoan Mankata has not developed the way that it looked like he would, and it doesn't look like he's going to continue to develop the way that he looked. At one point, I think he was the number one prospect in all of baseball. Tim Anderson is having a putrid season, <laughs> um, capped off by getting punched out when he initiated a fight. Did you see that, by the way? Did you enjoy that? 
I did enjoy that. My son sent me the link. He's like, have you ever seen this? I'm like, I've never seen a baseball fight go that, that far. That was pretty impressive. I, I thought it was great entertainment. <laughs> I love baseball fights. I will yeah. freely admit it. I mean, that's what I'm saying is like, we, whenever that happens, it's prime Twitter content. It's, it's <laughs> even if you're not a baseball fan, you're like, oh my gosh, look at that guy getting punched out. And Anderson was so wobbly, like he needed help getting walked off the field. Like he couldn't walk normal. Like they said good night to him. So I don't know. But anyway, yeah, going back to your point, I mean, there are some pieces there, but it doesn't look like this is going to be an easy fix. And I personally think they should probably blow the whole thing up. And I mean, you could hang on to him. You could hang on to Robert and Cease, maybe Andrew Vaughn. Maybe maybe you got a couple pieces there, but I mean, this team is so bad. And yeah. Yeah. All I know is Seattle. We just played them last week. And from minute one, the announcers were saying like, wow, this Chicago team's barely a major league team right now. No. Yeah. They're, they're, they're awful. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I think makes sense why Jerry did it, but Mm -hmm. people were surprised. And I think the timing, I mean, I don't know. I, this is me kind of just sort of thinking about what's the professional way to do something like this. Mm -hmm. And I, I haven't owned a team and I, I, haven't been in there's probably a lot more that i don't know about but it's just like why are you firing them like august 20th when they they've had this this what what was the last straw was it Mm -hmm. losing a series to the royals or you know what what exactly pushed you over the edge that you didn't do this sooner because i don't know it's a little odd to me when you have like guys manage the trade deadline and then you fire them after that. Um, <laughs> and I also, I don't know, I just, I guess I I would have seen it as what what's the benefit to firing them now versus after the season ends? Yeah, I mean, that's a valid point. And as fans, we are not going to know. I have no idea. Yeah. So, Mario, before we wrap up today's show, I want to bring up something that's going to probably be the most gleeful that you will sound on this podcast is talking about this topic even more gleeful than discussing the Seattle Mariners amazing run that they're having Mm -hmm. here in this great season. The New York Yankees. Hmm. (laughs) They still have a team. (laughs) I don't hear them about them much anymore. 62 and 67, 20. I mean, they have a minus 20 run differential. They're not going to make the playoffs. I, and I think this is something that brings a little bit of, of joy to your life. <laughs> now, now, why? Why would you say that, Jack? Well, I mean, I think it was the first or second time I had you on the show. You told your Don, Don Mattingly story, and you already alluded to it earlier. So, I mean, this is in big-time rivalry, Mariners-Yankees in the 90s, so... We even talked... I mean, we've we've touched on it every in every aspect. We talked about the East Coast bias... I'll I'll just let you go. Go ahead, Mario. Well, what's funny is the Mariners and Yankees don't really have a rivalry anymore, but I still have one in my head. It's like <laughs> two old guys arguing over who stepped on somebody's lawn back in 1985. <laughs> That's like literally. So yeah, for people who don't know, the Mariners and Yankees had a blood rivalry back in the 90s, and it, I loved it. It was so fantastic. There's so many bean balls and fights. And Randy Johnson bouncing fastballs off Jim Larritz's head. Like it was, they hated each other. It was the greatest thing ever. And it culminated in the 95 playoffs where we 
knocked them out and made sure Don Mattingly would ever play in a World Series, which was my highlight of my Mariners career, that we ended his career. <laughs> <laughs> then in the late 90s, the Mariners should have gotten better, and we didn't because we traded Tino Martinez to, guess what, the Yankees. And the Yankees went on their historic run, but we still had a huge blood rivalry against them. And all this culminates in 2001 where Seattle breaks the all-time win record, thus becoming statistically the greatest team of all time. And we lose to the Yankees in the ALCS, which pisses me off. Pissed me off. <laughs> Still does. So there was this amazing rivalry between the Mariners and the Yankees between 93 and 2001. And sometimes we won, sometimes they won, but it was always very personal. And I still to this day have that rivalry in my head, even though I don't think it has existed in 20 years. <laughs> so. I feel like every every American League team and or fan of an American League team uh-huh. has some kind of rivalry in their head with the Yankees. Even if they didn't play, their team didn't play a like yeah. the Royals have probably haven't had a playoff series with them since I don't know maybe the, <laughs> maybe in the 80s, but <laughs> but the Mariners and Yankees in the 90s that was a real thing. That was right. a legit rivalry. They hated us as much as we hated them. They hated us more than the Red Sox in the 90s. It was so fun seeing the Mariners be relevant to anything. So yeah, so even to this day, I should hate the Astros more. The Astros are the big bad guys, but I still have a, a never-ending, bloodthirst, quenching hatred for the Yankees and all the Yankee <laughs> fans. And I know they don't like me either, so that's fine, but that's what makes baseball fun. But yes, the fact that the Yankees are not doing well this year is very fun. I love it. Yeah, the Yan- this is kind of something that's been in the works for a little bit. They have an older roster, and I know... Let's let's bring this this thing up. Actually, we didn't talk about the Angels. This is a good way to segue into the Angels. I want to touch on them before we go. Mm-hmm. Is I know you feel strongly that Shohei Otani should have won the American League Cy Young or uh, Most Valuable Player Award mm-hmm. last year, and Aaron Judge did. And mm-hmm. I I personally I think that it was a I mean, I think there's a compelling case either way. I don't really think you could go wrong with either selection. Mm-hmm. But my type of argument is with what Judge did last year, 62, 63 home runs, a new American League home run record, 135 or 140 RBI, led the American League in almost every single major statistical category, OPS, um, the only one he, he, and he just, he almost had the triple crown. Mm -hmm. But my point is take a look at what this Yankees team has been without Aaron judge this season, because he's been out for most of the year Mm -hmm. and it ain't pretty. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think it goes to show that they were not a real true 99 win team last year. I think he really, and I know that we kind of, a lot of times we talk about how you're only one guy is only one guy in baseball. There's only mm-hmm. so much that one player can do. But there are times when teams can just be piggybacked by a superstar, which I think you saw with the Cubs recently with how well Cody Bellinger was playing, where he was all their offense. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the only star in that lineup. And I think that that was the Yankees last year. They were a 99-win team with Aaron Judge. Now, granted, they do have some guys who are a little older. There's a little regression this year. That's part of it. It's not just only Judge being out. But I, I think it validates how valuable he was to that team last year for most valuable player. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt he was valuable. And a, a good comp would be uh, Kirk Gibson on the 88 Dodgers. Yeah. yeah like, they were, they, that's a terrible team, and they have Kirk Gibson, and they <laughs> win the World Series. So I get that. Yeah, he's absolutely... 
without question, Aaron Judge was the single most valuable offensive player in the AL last year. He was the greatest. Let me, let me, re, re, let me rephrase that. He was the greatest one-way player in the AL last year. <laughs> Yet now let's factor in a different variable where Shohei Otani was also probably not only the number two offensive best player in the AL, but one of the top three or four best pitchers in the AL. So to me, I just think it's silly. And again, this, is, this isn't even me saying this as someone who doesn't like the Yankees. I just personally think this is one of those decisions that people are going to laugh at in 20 or 30 years when they look back at baseball history. And there's certain votes people look at, like, how did that happen? Like, I know in uh, 97 or 98 when Yvonne Rodriguez won over, I think it was Alex Rodriguez, and I forget, but the whole voting. But it was like, people look back at that and like, how the hell did that vote happen? That's what I think will happen with Aaron Judge. They're going to look back. Yeah, he had a great year. Like, he, had, he was a really good player on a really good team. But, oh, my God, no one had ever done what Shohei Otani did last year. So he was, that's, not, that's he, was a, he was not a really good player. He was a great player. He's yeah, a great player. Of course, they're both good. It's a solid vote. In any other season, Judge is a runaway slam dunk. I'm just saying we really should have appreciated Otani when we had him. Like he's, well, he may never yeah. be a two-way player again, and we should have appreciated yes, that. Yes, that's what we're going to discuss here. Um, I think you can still admire and appreciate the greatness of what Otani did last year without with having him number two on your ballot for the American League MVP. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll be I'll be I'll be very fair here. Shohei Otani is my favorite player. He's not even <laughs> on the Mariners. He's my favorite player. I love that guy. He is what he is him and Trout might be my two favorite players right now too. So I would you know I and do you think I want to give it to a Yankee? <laughs> I mean, after I feel like I sometimes want to counterbalance some of that East Coast bias, but in my in my opinion, I I really do think he deserved that award. I would have voted for him, um, but it was hard. I mean, I had to think about it. It wasn't like I, oh yeah, just pencil and judge easily. It was like, man, I mean, what Otani did last year, and I mean, even despite that, Judge had a higher wins above replacement. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. It's, it's, it's not an embarrassing vote. It's not the worst no. one of all time. It's just I don't one that I think, I think in the future people will raise an eyebrow at that one. It'll be, I mean, it'll, I think it'll definitely be, I, my, the way I look at it is I don't think people are going to look back on it and say, what were we thinking? I think it's going to, we're going to look back on it and be like, wow, that was, it was like, if you want to weigh, I think Bill Simmons has talked about this. Some years, there are much more worthy MVP candidates than other years. Mm -hmm. And so he was talking about, I think he's talked about, like, weighing certain MVPs as heavier, greater accomplishments than other ones. Mm -hmm. Like, I think we'll look back at that as, like, man, we had, like, that was an amazing MVP race of two, like, more than worthy candidates. Much better than whoever won in the NL, which I think was Paul Goldschmidt. Yeah, and we're likely never going to see that type of year ever again, the one that Otani had last year. That's You're going to look at Otani's career stats one day, and it's going to be like MVP, not MVP, 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 MVP. And like, what happened in the non-MVP? Oh, that was his best year. That's what I think. <laughs> that's how I, like, I'm a baseball yeah. historian. I think about this stuff. I, people are going to look at that baseball card or that statue. I guess they won't have cards maybe in the future. But what happened in that one non-MVP year? Oh, he was amazing. So Shohei Otani has a torn UCL. Mm-hmm. And this is very interesting. I think we should, before we talk about the impact of this, mm-hmm. like, I, I just want to say one thing here. And it's, 
I feel like I've been a, a huge, huge critic of the Angels over the years, going back to when we first started this podcast. Like, you could go back and listen to what, like, me just kind of openly mocking them back in 2019, 2020, and just saying, no, this team has no shot. And I feel, I feel like eventually a lot of people caught on, and now I feel like we've kind of gone in the opposite direction, where it's like, automatically, because it's the Angels people go with a narrative rather than looking at the information. So the first thing I saw with this Otani uh, report was that the angels ruined him. They, they screwed him over. How could they do this? They overworked him. That was kind of the narrative. But now in the days since Jeff Fletcher and Rhett Bollinger and um, Sam Blum, the three main primary beat writers that cover the angels, they've all reported on no, actually it was not the angels because they had concern about his elbow and they wanted to, you know, have him undergo a medical and Otani and his agent declined when, and this is not, this is again, I don't want this to sound like this is, wow, you're a moron. How could you not do that? This is actually not a super uncommon thing for a player to say, you know what? I feel fine. Let's keep going. And in most, in, in, in this case, the, the team, does not really have an option to overstep and be like, no, 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 you're, you're done like that. It's just, I think things have changed a little bit in this sport and in all sports. I mean, I think there's so much now where players are so concerned about your bodies. Teams don't want to be in a situation where th- th- it's like, they don't, they don't want to be in the situation where they accidentally, they, they do cause harm to a player. So this was not a situation where, I think anyone should really be put at blame. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just a sad, tragic thing that happened to one of the most special, if not the most special, greatest, one of the greatest players that the sport has ever seen. And you touched on it. This could be the end of him as a pitcher. I mean, he may not ever take the mound again. And I, I know you said this the other day, maybe it's something we should have we shouldn't have ever seen. Yeah, and this backs up my point. We really should have appreciated Otani when we had him. Like that's right back to my point. Why why not reward the guy for the MVP for maybe the greatest and most impressive season anybody has ever had ever last year? But yeah, it's it's sad. But it was probably inevitable. Like uh there's I you and I were talking in email the other day that there's a reason why people didn't want players to be pitchers and hitters back in the day, you know, through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, because there's a double injury risk. And uh, <laughs> so maybe there was some wisdom to that. And maybe yeah. this was inevitable. I, But I fully agree with you. I really hope people appreciated the Otani show while we had it. We may get it again. I don't know. Uh, we may not get it again. But at the end of the day, I think there's one good thing that will come out of this that everyone can agree on, Pond, that it is, it is amazing that Otani is never going to play for the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> so all of America can celebrate around that fact that the Yankees will never get him and you're never going to have him. So ha ha. So Otani has opted that he's going to keep playing for the rest of the year, at least for the time being, he's not mm-hmm. opting into surgery. Now this is, I mean, this is, again, this is something where it's like, well, you could immediately have surgery, but then once you go that route, you can't come back from it. You're not going to play. Yeah. I mean, he he's gonna he would probably bat next year, kind of like how Harper came back and he was able to hit. It's a different injury. You're able to swing a bat once you recover from that surgery, but you can't throw the way that mm-hmm. you know. And and a part of it is with Harper is even if he does throw, 
He's playing first base. Maybe he plays a little bit of right field. That's very different from pitching. So Otani could conceivably in this winter decide to go forward, have Tommy John, which means we might not see him pitch again until the middle of 2025, which sounds like a really long time from now. And Mm -hmm. it is. Um, Or he could just embrace, you know what, I'm a DH. And maybe he, maybe he ends up at a position. Maybe he ends up playing a little first base. Maybe, you know, I don't know. There's a lot that we don't know about, but it's undoubtedly going to impact his dollar amount, this free agency. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be interesting. I mean, is Otani going to go out there and try to still get the biggest contract he can get? Or does Otani go into this and say, you know what, let's figure out, first of all, get a plan in place for my health. Mm-hmm. Am I going to go through with Tommy John or am I just going to be a you know position player DH for the rest of my career? And then does he say, you know what, maybe I sign a short-term contract, return to the Angels and re-up and try to get this big contract in a couple of years? Yeah, see, I've been thinking about this a lot, what I would do in his position. And and there's a, there's one thing that I think people tend to overlook. Now, first off, I don't know how often people watch the Angels or watch Otani. He doesn't play in the field ever. Like, he's a DH. No, so. he, did, he did get in there a couple times when Joe Madden was running the show because mm-hmm. it, it was Joe Madden. So. <laughs> yeah. But the thing about Otani is, yeah, he was going to get this, the greatest contract in the history of baseball ever for being a two-way player. But if you step back and you look at the big picture, he is still a guy who's going to hit, you know, 290 with 50 bombs and steal 30 bases. Like that guy already is going to get a massive contract just for the hitting alone. So my personal belief, I could be wrong here. I think he's going to say, you know, screw the pitching. I don't need it anymore because I'm already an MVP level hitter. That's mm-hmm. my personal belief, and I think this might not even affect him all that much. He's still going to get a huge contract either with the Angels or Dodgers or Giants and not the Yankees. And But I still think he has immense value, and I think people forget that, how good he is as a hitter. Yeah, I mean, this season alone, he leads the American League in OBP, slug, OPS, OPS+, plus, home runs, triples, yeah. uh, and walks. Yeah, in 40 years of baseball, there's no hitter I like coming up against us for the Mariners less than Shohei Otani. I, <laughs> oh, man. I hate when he comes up because he hits that ball so hard and it's a different sound and he's clutch and he's just scary. Again, in 40 years, I've never seen a hitter who scares me more than Otani. And this is like, like I've seen like Barry Bonds. Otani is terrifying when he's hitting. And, you know, the it's possible that he becomes an even better hitter. When he's that's just hitting. Yeah, that's a 50% of less of his spare time is spent on uh, hitting at this point. So all of a sudden now he can focus full time. So I personally don't know if it's going to really hurt his contract that much, to be honest, because he was already in line for a huge payday. Well, I do think it will, because part of why his contract where we were talking at a, as a starting point of $500 million is mm-hmm. something. I mean, it's all speculation. We don't know. But. The reason why, because you're signing two players. You're yeah. signing a Cy Young candidate and an MVP candidate. And uh, now you're signing one player. So it is going to bring down his value. The question is, how much? And we have to remember that even if he's just hitting, he's going to be in an unbelievable draw to the ballpark. I mean, I'm seeing, I just searched his name on Twitter and I saw this video of all these Japanese fans at the Mets game 
see like cheering for mm-hmm. him, seeing him. Uh, I went to see him play in Chicago earlier this year against the White Sox. So many Japanese fans out there. Like it's it's great. There's so many people in mm-hmm. Japan that are going to buy his jerseys and want to come out and see him. So he is going to bring you tremendous value, not just as a player, but also as an investment in terms of ticket sales, jerseys, all that stuff. And that's where Nightingale said on this show, the Giants need him more than any of those other four teams in California. Because, I mean, I believe, a lot of us believe, he's only going to sign with a team in California. Mm-hmm. Unless the Mariners really want to pony up that money, maybe they're another team that's in play. But the Giants of those four teams arguably need Otani the most because their ticket sales has gone, it's taken a, a nosedive ever since COVID. Yeah, it's, uh, and again, this is something I saw with Ichiro. Like you have the Japanese star on your team. You are now the team of the entire country of Japan. Yeah. Like it's, it's enormous. And I've seen this in Angel Stadium. I go down there and the Japanese population in that crowd is so huge. And I'm like, I live in Southern California. I'm like, I don't know. I don't even know if we have that many Japanese people here. Are these people flying in for this game? It's <laughs> yeah. unbelievable the they draw are. he is. Yeah. So that's the thing. So if they could put him in San Francisco, where the Asian population is just about the biggest anywhere in the U.S., oh my God, the draw he would be there. So yeah, it's uh, it would be unbelievable. It's, I personally want to see him on the Angels just because he mean I, I'm kind of. Because it's my local team. He means so much to that team. Their whole identity is the Shohei Otani Stadium. They might as well rename the stadium after him. So (laughs) I would feel so bad for the fans if he left the Angels. I just, I just, even though I don't like the Angels that much, I would feel terrible. That's just, that's the heart of their team. That's their whole identity. Yeah. But if he goes to the Giants, that is a, that is quite the game changer in the publicity around that team. Yeah. And I, I personally think he's going to be on the Angels or the Dodgers. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think. He's going to the Giants because while they make that they may make a play for him, they've really struck out on free agents in recent years. For whatever reason, they haven't been able to land the plane on Aaron Judge or mm-hmm. Bryce Harper or whomever it is. And now you've got even if he doesn't ever pitch again, a big, big, big ticket free agent. And uh, I think he's going to stay in L.A. I don't know if he's going to be in Orange County or if he's going to be playing at Chavez Ravine mm-hmm. but I think that and that's where I think the Angels were wise not to trade him because if you have a a pretty a lot of people believe that it's going to end ultimately come down to those two teams you have a really good shot at re-signing him and if you're trading him you're punting on that opportunity and there's tremendous value I know you and I have talked about having guys stay in one uniform for their entire career and being mm-hmm. synonymous with an organization. And and that could be something that's important to them. We'll see. Yeah, also, I mean, you have to look at it just from the human being perspective. If they trade yeah. Otani and then two months later try to sign him to a contract, oh, he's like, he's, what? Yeah. yeah, why do you love me now? You didn't love me two months ago. Well, it's like you're telling your girlfriend you're going to take a break and then yeah. you get mad when you find out she's engaged during your break. Like, yeah, <laughs> you I, were I the one who said, let's take a break. <laughs> Yeah, I don't really want Otani to get comfortable in a new city, personally. Yeah, exactly. So, But I, I have heard, I know you've said this as well, we, Jack and I exchange emails all the time, that kind of the perspective around Otani is that nobody knows what this guy wants. He's kind of no, a, yeah. he's very private, he doesn't talk a lot, he doesn't share his thoughts, but it's, it's 
the consensus seems to be he's kind of a creature of habit. He likes to stay out of the limelight. He just likes his routine. So, yeah, I would not be shocked at all if he stays in Anaheim. That's just what he's used to. Anybody that claims to know anything mm-hmm. probably doesn't. Unless unless it's someone who is a highly reputable insider that has had lots of scoops. So, so if Bob Nightingale says he knows something, then Bob Nightingale probably does. But Bob even said on this show... Anybody who knows anything about Otani is probably lying. Yeah. And that's that's, you know, the top newsbreaker in the sport. So yeah. I I don't think anybody anybody that says, Oh, he's fed up with the organization, I know this or I think this, well, you you don't know that. You really don't. I know one thing. He's probably not signing with the Oakland A's. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one thing I know and that's probably true. I mean, you can look at the pieces, the clues around him, and the clues are that he likes being in California, which is close to Japan. He mm-hmm. he doesn't like big cities. When he was in New York, I mean, Bob pointed this out, the Mets writers asked him, hey, did you go out anywhere? And he's just like, I just slept. Like, I didn't go. I, he doesn't like going out. And so he's not someone that's going to be attracted to a big city. And just piecing it together, it's it's much closer to his home if he's in California and he's more accessible to fans because not only is it easier for them to fly in and see him, but also it's easier for them to watch him play because the day, the games start later. It's mm-hmm. like, it's a, it is a pretty big difference because you're talking about if he's playing in New York, the games are starting at 8 AM for these fans out in Japan. It's like seven or 8 AM versus 10 or 11 AM. So yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I really, I'm glad you brought that up. I don't, I think people who don't live on the West Coast don't realize how close to Asia we really are and how what a big Asian influence there is everywhere up and down the West Coast, really. Seattle, San Francisco, L.A. is just much different than you'd see anywhere else in the country. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, I just think Japan, I think it's so far away from Chicago, but mm-hmm. really isn't quite as far if you're out on the West Coast. No, it's, uh, I, I don't know, I've never flown that route, but it can't be that much further than flying from, you know, L.A. to Boston. Yeah, probably. But probably okay, right. let me let me point out one thing. I don't think we're going to get Otani in Seattle. There's no indication that we will, and most advisors say, no, of course not. Seattle won't even make a play. They don't have the money. <laughs> I should point out that when Otani signed with the Angels back in the, in the day, Seattle was his number two choice, and Jerry Depoto has gone on record as saying, I thought we had him. When I went mm-hmm. to bed that night, I it was my understanding he was coming to Seattle. So they were very close back in the day, and I know Otani trains in Seattle in the offseason. I know he's up there quite a bit. His private coaches are up there. And obviously we have probably the biggest Japanese population anywhere in the country. So even though we're not the favorite, if it somehow pulls this mystery out of his butt and signs with Seattle, it should not be a surprise. <laughs> well, Dave Sims says he doesn't see it happening. He said that on this show. That mm-hmm. was a few months ago. We'll see if yeah. things change. I agree. I agree with Dave Sims. I don't see it happening either. But again, nobody knows. And Otani does have ties up there. And there was a thing a couple weeks ago when the Angels were playing in Seattle and all the Seattle fans were chanting, come to Seattle, come to Seattle, every time Otani was batting. And he seemed to get a kick out of it. So again, I think he's going to stay in Anaheim personally. But if he comes to Seattle, oh my God, that would be fun. He's Mario Lanza creator and founder of the funny 115 he's got mm-hmm. several projects he's got a book he's got a new project that he's working on he's got two podcasts 
Mario, please go ahead and plug the stuff you're working on that people should check out. Plugging is so hard for me these days because I have such a short attention span. Like I'll start a project and I'll do it for a while, <laughs> then I'll move on to a new one. So at the moment, okay, if you like Survivor, go to funny115.com. It is the, sure, I'll just say it. It's the greatest Survivor website ever made. It's yep. got millions and millions of readers. It's, I mean, it's the one that all the players read. It's, it's, a fun, it's the history of the funniest moments on Survivor written by someone with some pretty good insight who has actually been there and knows a lot of this stuff. So it's, that's, my, that's my baby. I have a podcast on movies called Staff Picks where I, I find all the little poor, wretched movies out there that never got an audience or never got the love they deserve. And I try to stick up for them. I, I love sticking up for the underdog. So it's called Staff Picks. It's where I just talk about movies that just needed a little more love. And I've been on there. Jack was on there. We talked about Moneyball, one of my recent episodes. In fact, I have an episode on Grand Torino coming out soon. That Clint oh, that's a great movie. That is such a fan. And that's a great episode. It's a good discussion. Ooh. So anyway, you can find Staff Picks at staffpicks.podbean.com. And you can also find that on uh, iTunes. I have a podcast on the history of Survivor, the TV show Survivor, called The Survivor Historians, which we don't put out episodes very regularly, but we have a hundred and something of them out there. Go to survivorhistorians.podbean.com. Um, and at the moment, my big thing is uh, I, I, don't, I had a weird childhood. There's a lot of funny things that happened to me when I was a kid, and I had parents who were characters. And so a lot of people over the years have said, you should just write up some stories of your childhood. Just write up these stories about what it was like growing up and all these funny things that happened. So I've been doing those, and you can find that at funny115.com slash Mario stories. And I'm very proud of those because some of those are amazing. I have I have stories you have never heard from kids before. Some of the stuff that I was raised with the mom and the dad that I had. Speaking of which, mm -hmm. tying it into sports here for our sports mm -hmm. audience. Yeah. One time, Mario's dad put a bounty <laughs> in a peewee football game on another player. Yeah, Jack is tipping, is spoiling my best Mario story. My dad was a scoundrel. And I say that lovingly. My dad was very shady and unethical but in a way he would never get caught and he <laughs> <laughs> i played on his basketball team as a kid and my dad had a rule on the basketball team you have five fouls use them like you were in you were we were the 89 pistons and i'm talking like a 12 year old basketball team my dad's strategy was whoever the best kid is on the other team pound the crap out of him so he won't <laughs> go in for layups like we're 12 this is my dad's strategy <laughs> If you come out of the game with less than four fouls, he would yell at you. He was mad. So, like, my dad my dad would, would implement these things, these more adult strategies into peewee sports. And he literally did this in 1985 or 6 on my brother's football team where there was some running back killing my dad's team, some little 10 or 11-year-old running back. And my dad at halftime says, somewhat jokingly, this is controversial. This is controversial. We're not sure. My dad said, whoever knocks that kid out of the, team, out of the game gets 10 bucks. <laughs> my dad literally puts a price on the head of a 10 year old kid <laughs> this is a legendary story because there's a, a a big scrum in the third quarter and there's everyone falls on the ball and this kid the running back ends up with a twisted knee it's not like a terrible injury but they have to take him out of the game and so my dad literally put a bounty on the kid and the kid has to come out of the game and so all these kids on my dad's team start cheering up and down so-and-so gets 10 bucks, so-and-so gets 10 bucks, they knocked him out of the game. They start cheering out loud. <laughs> and my dad's like, shut up, shut up, do not say that. Don't say there was a bounty on this kid. And so it leads to this huge controversy where the other coach comes running onto the field and my dad's playing all innocent. And the other coach 
gets nailed for a 15-yard penalty for rushing onto the field for unsportsmanlike <laughs> conduct. <laughs> and my my brother was one of the players on the team. He loves telling that story. He's like, that is unbelievable. No one else ever had a youth sports incident like that where our dad was putting a bounty on a 10-year-old. <laughs> Amazing. That's Mar- one of my Mario stories. I got about 20 others, including one where, I, I kid you not, I was suspected of being a, being a serial killer yep. two different times one summer. That was a good one, too. It was a really good one. So, yeah, read funny115.com slash Mario stories if you want to see into my interesting insight and my childhood. And I will have, I promise, some Mariner stories, some baseball, some Little League stories. I got a lot of fun sports ones in there. So, funny115. He's got the Mario stories over on that site as well. Mm-hmm. He's got two podcasts, the Mo- Staff Picks movie podcast, Survivor Historians, and he also wrote a book. That's the other I wrote thing. wrote a book. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I have a book called When It Was Worth Playing For, which is about the history of the TV show Survivor, especially the first three seasons, and it puts you right there into the summer of 2000. You are right there. You are experiencing the show and watching it as it plays out, as the audience responded to it, what the culture was like, how the media reacted to it. It's really designed to put you right there into a simulation of what it was like to see the show develop during its first three seasons. I, it, I think it's a really good book. And yeah, it's I, great. I get a lot of good, good feedback about it. It's Again, a... I would say I'm I'm a a very strong reader, um, but it's an easy read. It's something that it's the chapters are only five six pages, which makes it, you know, oh I'll read a couple chapters right now while I'm waiting to to do something or I'm laying out at the beach and getting some sun and I'm almost finished it. It's about four hundred something pages. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got I've got it right here four hundred forty four hundred fifty pages. I'm four hundred through so close to finishing yeah and i kept the price point down most most books that are that big are much more expensive like 30 bucks i think it's like 16 or 17 it's not that expensive i kept it low on amazon for people so they can buy it on amazon Mm -hmm. and is there anything else mario gosh i know there's something else i always forget at least one project uh (laughs) podcasts writing Book. Yeah, the Mario stories is the big one. I'm trying to finish the Funny 115 and my Staff Picks episode on Gran Torino I should have out pretty soon. I just released one on an old 80s movie called Max Dugan Returns the other day. That's my most recent one. Oh, you were, um, I mean, you're not doing the SNL podcast anymore. So it's like you, you've you dropped some projects. So <laughs> like, yeah, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Jack, you're going to get me in trouble, but <laughs> I am very unfiltered. I just say it like it is. I say my opinions. I can. I have no sponsors on my show. I have no ads. I have nobody I answer to other than me. So every so often, they'll hire me to go on a podcast. And a lot of the time, it's like a, an SNL podcast that has sponsors and ads. And so we can only say good things about the show. Otherwise, we piss off our sponsors. <laughs> and that is not a good idea to put me on that show because I will not play that game. I will not say something's good if it's not good. And so I always get in trouble on podcasts like that. <laughs> so I've been asked not to be on SNL podcasts anymore. <laughs> Banned. Yeah. I was, you know, Survivor podcast similar. There's some that will not have me on for the same reason. <laughs> well, you know that in a week or two weeks or whenever this new season starts, they're going to do a 10 minute cold open reenacting the first Republican debate. And mm-hmm. it's going to be horrible. <laughs> You know, okay, legitimately, SNL right now is really good. They have some really good young talent, and it's, like, unhinged. It's like there's not recurring characters. It's just very weird, bizarre stuff with all these young people. But they cannot do political humor for the life of them, and they still think they can. 
and it's like the emperor has no clothes. Like, could someone point out to these comedy writers on NBC that they don't know how to do political comedy? It's like people are so polite. They're like, you're not good at this. You should not be doing this for your for your job. You're a fraud. So, again, these are the statements I am not allowed to make on SNL podcast. Did you ever? I mean, I know that I have an idea of what your school of comedy is, and. But did you ever appreciate like any of the political comedy going back to like Dana Carvey doing George H.W. Bush or anything like that? Like, do you think it was ever stronger or do you just think it's never been very good? Okay, here's an interesting point. Most people don't think about this, but SNL, when I grew up in the 80s, was made for older people. The prime audience for SNL in the 80s is like 40 year olds. And so the, the political humor is very old, very kind of sophisticated. Like it gets juvenile at times, but it's written by people for people of the same age. At a certain point, they really flipped the switch where SNL was made for about 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds. <laughs> so it gets very juvenile. So there's a big jump. There's a big change somewhere between the 80s and about 2010 or so where the, the demographic of the, the audience is has changed. And I was in a bad spot because I was too young for the older SNL political mm. comedy. And then when I got older, I was too old for the younger, more juvenile political comedy. So I've, I've never really appreciated the SNL political humor, even though I will fully admit a lot of it's really good. A lot of the older stuff, especially, but it was never made for someone my age. I always thought Will Ferrell's George W. Bush was fun. Yeah. Yeah, Will Ferrell was good, George W. Bush. I love Dana Carvey's. Yeah, Dana Carvey and HW. Or... Yeah, that was the kind of the thing. Those guys weren't really doing straight impressions. I've always said Dana Carvey was never a good impressionist, but he's good at capturing someone's essence. So Dana Carvey would really find the essence and make it funny, which is way better than someone trying to be super accurate like Daryl Hammond, who just, I'd never yeah. really, like, I liked him as Clinton when he started, but eventually he was so interested in being accurate it just wasn't funny anymore and that's the that's my problem with a lot of political humor you're just doing an impression but there's no joke there you're just saying what they said in a press conference that's not writing well that was the we're gonna wrap this podcast up because we've gone too long but (laughs) (laughs) the last thing is they did that five years ago when they did the kavanaugh hearing and they did not add a single joke it was 12 minutes of like oh a different cameo oh now we got matt damon and now we got this person and I just couldn't believe that that was something that anybody enjoyed because there was no, there was nothing clever about it. It was just like they thought it was cute to just have people word for word reenacting something that happened that wasn't funny, really. Yeah, <laughs> to it was begin just clapper. with, they're just yeah. clapper. They just want clapper, clap, clapping from the audience, which is not. That's absolutely. I'm aghast at that kind of comedy where you just want applause from the audience. I would. That's. I'm against everything about that. Absolutely. So he's Mario Lanza. You can follow him on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Yep, that is correct. I don't check it that much, but every so often if you tweet me on there, I will respond. All right. Is there anything else to plug? I wish I had something else. I probably <laughs> do, but I don't. Just I'm Another, always no- out there. I'm, I'm an unfiltered commentator on baseball and pop culture. That's what I am. Yeah, very good. Okay, so you guys check him out. Give him a follow. Thanks again for your time today, Mario. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime, have me on, and when the Mariners win the World Series over the Braves, I want to be back on again. (laughs) Sounds good. All right, y'all, that concludes today's episode of the Jack Vita Show with the Mario Lanza. Like we said, you can follow him on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza, and check out all of the work and projects he has going on over at Funny115.com. And by his book, I will include all of those links in the show notes on our website, jackvita.com. 
this is we're gonna wrap things up here because we went a little long. So if you guys want to follow me on social media, my handle is at Jack Vita Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please subscribe to the Jack Vita Show if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and uh, well, like I said, most of our episodes are on YouTube. So while we did not have video today, you can still subscribe to our YouTube, turn on notifications so you don't miss an episode. And if you guys are enjoying the show, please share the show with a friend, someone who you think would enjoy it. We will be back again next week, probably talking some more baseball and We'll have some more interviews coming up with interesting people from uh, the world of sports and entertainment, as we always do. Until then, I'm Jack Vita, bringing the dancing lobsters. <laughs>